Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I am very happy and pleased to bring the conversation I had with Rory Cox. Rory is a senior lecturer in history at the University of St. Andrews. He's held two international research fellowships at the University of Stockholm and also through Caltech. He has a bachelor's in ancient history, master's in medieval studies, both from University College London, and a DPhil in history from the University of Oxford. Uh, many of his uh, main focus areas are on the ethics of war, history of violence, and intellectual history. And he is the author of the fabulous book, uh, Origins of the Just War, Military Ethics and Culture in the Ancient Near East. It is a fantastic book. I absolutely love this book. One of, the, one of my favorites I read last year. Um, it has all the, all the things, at least for me, it has history, it has a little bit of obviously some political uh, components, it has ethics, it has uh, so much good stuff in there. And, and basically he traces uh, three ancient civilizations in the ancient Near East, uh, the ancient Egyptians, the Hittites, and the Israelites. And Rory was so nice that we talked for three hours um, about all of this. Now, you know, in his book, it's a 500 plus pages. And I have to say, three hours uh, really does go by fast when you're covering thousands of years of history and you're covering, you know, three civilizations in the ancient Near East. So um, it, it, it was, it really kind of flew by in, in a lot of ways. And I can't imagine <laughs> trying to talk about this stuff in, you know, an hour or something. So um, I was really, really happy that he, he gave three hours of his time and energy. And, and I just, I, I really enjoy the conversation. We talked by giving uh, an overview, that's how we start, of the Egyptian empire, uh, the Nile River and its importance for the Egyptian kingdom, and the three major kingdom periods with a central monarchy. We also talk about the Hittites, uh, who they are, why they were so short-lived. They were about 250, 300 years um, towards the end uh, uh, there of the, um, you know, before AD. And it's interesting how they have still a lasting impact on the region today. Talk about the boundaries of their kingdom, their interactions with other uh, kingdoms nearby. Of course, we talk about the Israelites. Um, we talk about problems with the Hebrew Bible as a primary source. Uh, and what their, the legacy of the Israelites is and how that continues till today. Uh, we also look at, you know, defining just war, what that is. Uh, we talk about the, the three different components of just war that he describes in the book. Use uh, ad bellum, use ad bello, and use post bellum. So essentially, you know, what is it like to, uh, what, are the, what is the justification for going to war? What are the ethics for that? What are the ethics when you're in war? And then what are the ethics uh, post-war? And those are kind of what those those are and, and how he describes them in this period. And we also give a, a picture of what war looks like in the ancient Near East. Uh, obviously, today we have an idea of what war looks like, uh, but it was quite different uh, in uh, second and third millennium. We also talk about authority and divine appointment for going to war with each of these three kingdoms, Egyptians, Hittites, Israelites, and what that looks like. Talk about self-defense. We talk about military ethics, culture and identity, uh, treatment of combatants and non-combatants. Um, for the Israelites, we talk about the importance of Deuteronomy 20 and, and why that's significant. Uh, we talk about violence, genocide, and then we, towards the end of the conversation, talk about you know what just war looked like through the ages and up to the modern era, 
and, uh, and, and many other topics. Again, I was, it's really nice when you, you read a book, you really enjoy it and you get to talk about it for a couple hours. And so again, Rory gave me three hours that were just super rich with, uh, with detail. Um, I think super important. Obviously this is, uh, sort of unfortunately an evergreen topic, uh, for conflicts around the world. And I think really understanding not only a historical account, but the evolution of military ethics, the evolution of just war way before, you know, kind of Augustine or anyone like that, um, especially in, in the Near East, is important for, uh, you know, to understand on its own, but also to kind of, you know, see a kind of, uh, you know, filter or lens of how we understand, you know, the historical implications for things today. And I think that that's, uh, again... It's very, it's very evergreen, unfortunately. So Rory is doing great stuff. He's a great researcher, a great communicator, and uh, he's just a lovely person and, and brilliant and a blast to talk with. As always, you can find this conversation and all other conversations at convergingdialogues.substack.com. I'm also on YouTube, so get over there, follow, like, subscribe, share widely with your friends, post online. Uh, you can contribute as well. It's much appreciated. And uh, go buy his book, Origins uh, of the Just War. It's, uh, it really is fantastic. And uh, now I bring you Rory Cox. I'm here with Rory Cox. Rory, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I'm uh, very excited to talk with you. Thanks so much for inviting me on. I'm, I'm looking forward to chatting as well. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you have written a absolutely masterpiece of a book really really is fantastic it's one of the as i was telling you it's one of my favorites this year for sure it is called origins of the just war military ethics and culture in the ancient near east and uh this is out through princeton university press the wonderful princeton um so we're gonna it's a it's a big boy this is uh this clocks in at uh 500 pages right 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 about there so Mm -hmm. um of course there's Mm -hmm. notes and things like that but uh it's, uh, as, as listeners will know, if they pick up the book, which they absolutely should, lots of things to get into, many, uh, you know, centuries you're kind of going over in the book, so it's, it's all relevant. Um, before we get into the book, why don't you tell listeners um, who you are uh, academically and professionally and uh, anything uh, currently relevant for you? Okay, thanks very much. Yeah, well, well. Uh... Again, thank you for having me on, and, and, and hello to everybody. Uh, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a senior lecturer in, in history at the University of St. Andrews in, in Scotland, in, in the UK, uh, where I've been for oh, 12 or 13 years now. Um, I mm. come uh, from actually an ancient history background. I studied ancient history uh, at undergraduate, then came back uh, into medieval history and did a doctorate at, at Oxford. In, in late medieval uh, history on a guy called John Wycliffe, who some listeners may have heard of, connected to early English translations of the Bible, a kind of a vehement uh, critic of the, the papacy, um, but a very important 14th century theologian and, and philosopher. So my, my, my first book was about his ideas of war and peace, uh, and my thesis was that he was the first absolute pacifist and completely rejected mm contemporary just war doctrine. So I began to sort of get really interested in, in the ideas of, of just war theory and military ethics, um, partly through an interest in theology and partly through an interest in philosophy and partly through an interest in military history. And so, you know, I, I see what I do as essentially sort of 
the intellectual history of war, I suppose. Um, and yeah, and, and since leaving Oxford, you know, I worked at the University of Aberystwyth for a short while and, and then, yeah, quickly ended up in St Andrews, where I'm very lucky to be. But I've always really been fascinated by long histories, deep histories. I'm, mm. I'm, I, mm. I, I, I get a little bit uh, aggravated when people want to, you know, create these what are artificial periodizations um, and, and treat them as very concrete. Um, for me, you know, the better you know ancient history, the more you understand the Middle Ages, and the more you understand the Middle Ages, the better you understand the early modern and, and the modern. So it's, 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 I'm always interested in looking at the continuities, and of course also the, the, the breakages and the, the, the differences. But uh, I think taking a deep look at the past is, is always the best way forward, and, and that's what I've certainly done in, in my career so far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I fully agree with you. I think that, you know, we need to be able to zoom in and zoom out appropriately, right? I mean, of course, we should avoid you know, kind of this presentism kind of thing, but we must have uh, a really deep understanding of, you know, deep history and time. And and uh, you certainly go way back in the book. So that, that's going to be fun because I'm, I'm sure most people don't uh, don't look, don't think about this on a daily basis. So it's, it's very, very, very good. I, I want to just ask just kind of as a kind of like a footnote of sorts, but um, so, so we'll talk about just war in a minute, but in terms of the book, as I mentioned, it's, you know, it's a good size book. Um, if, if I remember reading correctly in the beginning, it took you about 10 years to write this. And, yeah. um, why did you decide these three regions slash kingdoms, which are, uh, the Egyptians, uh, the Hittites and the Israelites, um, so yeah, how, why, why did you decide on these three and not some other, uh, region or kingdom? And, uh, yeah. What was that like for a decade of your life, uh, <laughs> writing this book? <laughs> yeah. When you put it like that, it's like, oh God. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah so I started work on this book around, uh, from about 2014. So yeah, you know, getting up to, to 10 years. Um, originally the book was going to be completely different. So uh, I had always, um, as, as part of the history of the just war and the just war tradition, there is a very much an accepted narrative that it essentially all begins with, with St. Augustine, the, 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 the Christian father in, in late antiquity. Um, mm. And if people sort of want to push it a bit earlier back, then they mention sort of Cicero in the first century BCE, the Roman orator. Uh, and maybe even if they want to push it a little bit further back than that, they'll mention Aristotle or they'll mention Plato. Mm. And I was always really convinced that, that that wasn't the full story and that, for a start, that the pre-Christian tradition um, needed to have a lot more attention, but, um, but also the, 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 the non-European, as it were, the non-Hellenistic, the non-Roman. So I, you know, and, and obviously a place to begin with that was, was the, the Hebrew Bible or, or the Tanakh, which of course was, was fundamental to the, the, the Christian interpretations of, of warfare. So that was already a kind of a, you know, a Levantine um, and, and sort of pre-Christian area that I thought was, was sort of ripe, ripe for, for investigation. So, so yeah, so I was kind of pushing against this, you know, it all begins with Augustine or whatever, you know, so... So the original idea was to, to do a big survey of, of just war thought from the ancient world all the way up to basically about 1500. Uh, uh, 
1500 common era. So you know, early modern, basically. Uh, and, and part of that was to show that actually this is a, a much more continuous tradition and a much older tradition and potentially a, a non-exclusively Christian or an exclusively Western and European tradition. So that was going to be the whole book. And that's actually the book that I, that I sort of uh, agreed to write with, with Princeton. <laughs> the book I, I sort of sold them on, on the proposal, as it were, um, which was great. And so, you know, I, I knew the medieval stuff pretty well already. I knew the, 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 the late antique stuff. I knew the Greco-Roman stuff pretty well, too. And so, you know, I started off looking at the Near Eastern material. Uh, and essentially, <laughs> I, never, I never got out of it because... <laughs> I just, I, I, I found so much uh, and, and there was remarkably little scholarship um, that, had had, that had looked at it, um, particularly from the angle of, of someone, you know, some of my background, which is sort of a historian of the ethics of war, um, you know, the material just hadn't been utilized. And so I started reading as much of the primary material in translation as I could, because, you know, mm. this, is, this is, I have to hold up my hands, you know. I'm not an Orientalist. Um, you know, I have, I have Latin. I, I did study Greek when I was an undergraduate. Um, I, but these are useless, basically, in the, in the period that, oh, yeah. that I'm yeah. looking at. And, and, you know, and to mm-hmm. learn ancient Egyptian, Akkadian, Hebrew, Hittite, mm-hmm. Assyrian. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, this would have been a 10-year project in and of itself. So, you know, I, I was yeah. relying on basically translations in French and German and, and English and trying to triangulate those. Um, but fortunately, a lot of this material is translated and it's translated extremely well. Um, so I started mm-hmm. just reading as much of the primary evidence as I could, as much evidence from, from Egypt. Uh, I read, the, obviously, the whole of the, the, the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, um, as much of the Hittite mm-hmm. evidence, the Assyrian evidence. And it just you know, overwhelmingly appeared to me that there was not only massive amounts of information here about war, um, but also about judicial thought about war, philosophical thought about war, you know, theological thought about war. Um, that, as I said, hadn't really had much attention. And, and it, it quickly became obvious that this was going to be a, a book in and of itself. Um, and yeah, and uh, took up the next eight years of, of my life. <laughs> so the book now really... Um, you know, the, 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 the core of the book, I suppose, really ends in about 500 BCE. Um, although I do, at the, mm-hmm. towards the end of the book, I do go into the sort of the Hellenistic and, and later period and, and then draw mm-hmm. some parallels with mm-hmm. the modern world as well. But um, yeah, it ended up being quite different. And that was simply, I, simply because there was just this, uh, this fountain of, of, of evidence that, that, that I could sort of drink from. Mm. So before I want to define, obviously, you know, war and just war theory. I mean, that's obviously, you know, immense amounts of literature on this. But why don't you give us the landscape of sorts of the the Egyptians at the time period that you're looking at them? So so for for listeners, you know, this is all, uh, you know, BCE, right? This is not this is not. uh, Yeah. uh, A.D. So it's not current or modern uh, uh, Egypt, but for, for the Egypt section. I believe it's 3150 to 1069 BCE, and then we get to the uh, to the Hittites, um, and we can talk about them, and that's you know 1650 to 1200, and then finally the the Israelites, uh, and that leads us right up to um, 500 or 450 BCE. So anyway, so tell us about that. Tell us about 
I guess, the time frame, but kind of really just jump us into the, those regions looked a little bit different than how they are. Most people, they're going to look on a globe or they're going to look at a map and they're going to look at lines drawn on a map. Not quite the same, especially for the Hittites uh, that, that aren't around anymore, at least. So kind of just tell us what the contours were of these regions and, and, uh, and, and what was the uh, kind of setup for, for these places. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, if we if we start in Egypt, and, and in a way, Egypt geographically is the easiest to conceive because it is centered so much on on the Nile River. Um, so yeah, as you say, you know, our our first evidence of of a united Egypt emerges around 3150, 3100 um, BCE, and so Egypt up until this point was is really thought of as as Lower Egypt and Upper Egypt. So Lower Egypt is essentially the Nile Delta. Um, so effectively where, where modern Cairo is-ish, you know, down towards the Mediterranean where the, where the Nile branches into these you know, hundreds of different um, yeah, branches. <laughs> That's what they're called, branches of the Nile, um, and tributaries and, and this huge kind of Nile Delta region, wetlands, very fertile, you know, prone to flooding, et cetera, et cetera. And, and all the way down to, to, the, to the Mediterranean coast. You then have mm. Upper Egypt, which again goes from roughly modern-day Cairo to what was called the first cataract of the Nile. And the mm. cataracts of the Nile are where, in the ancient world, the Nile becomes unnavigable. They're effectively, you know, rapids mm. and rocky areas of the river and things like this. So... And, and this is, a, is, is a basically where the modern Aswan is. The modern Aswan Dam was, it was essentially a, a means to not only control Nile flooding, but also to uh, make the, the, the Nile south of Aswan navigable because it, it flooded the, the cataracts. And so that, that then the second, third, fourth cataracts are taking you into what is today northern Sudan, and then the Nile, the Nile splits into the Blue Nile and the Blue Nile and, and the White Nile. Um, but yeah, so it really, when we're talking about ancient Egypt, we're talking about the Upper Nile from around, well, what was then Memphis, but which is near modern-day Cairo. So Upper Egypt, roughly Cairo to Aswan, and Lower Egypt, roughly Cairo down to the Mediterranean coast. And it was in mm-hmm. around 3100 that this king emerges called Menes um, uh, or Nama. It's possibly the same person. Like I said, the history is a little bit hazy. Um, and he seems to be a, uh, from the upper Nile region, particularly around the, the city of the Hawk, Hierakonpolis or, or Nakada, as it's also referred to. And so what, ha- what seems to happen is that this upper Nile Valley culture increasingly asserts itself over the lower Nile, the Delta region, and finally unites the kingdoms really right at the turn of the fourth and third millennium, uh, producing mm. what is called the United Kingdom of Egypt. And then really Egyptian history from there down to the very end of the second millennium is defined by a series of kingdom periods, three great mm-hmm. kingdom periods, the old kingdom, the middle kingdom, and the new kingdom. And, it, and it's in these periods where Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt are essentially united and you have a central monarchy ruling the whole region. So 
in between this, you have a first, what's called the first intermediate period, which is roughly <laughs> 22, 2150 to about 2050. I would have to say that all these dates are, that, that there's, there's, there's broad consensus on them, but there are different dating systems. So there is some, some disagreement as, as to which sort of dating scale to use. So that you should take the, sure. these all as, as approximate. Um, but yeah, you have this mm-hmm. first intermediate period where effectively the power of the centralized monarchy breaks down into these regional kind of regional states, governorships, I suppose. They were referred to as gnomes and the people who ruled them as nomarchs. Mm. And so for about 150 mm. years, you have a decentralized Egypt. You then have the emergence of a new dynasty to create the Middle Kingdom, which runs from essentially the, the first half of the second millennium. Again, this breaks down in about 1650 BCE. With the again, the, it seems to be a, a series of weak kings, and then uh, the invasion of a, a foreign people called the referred to as the Hyksos in, in later sources. Um, again, these hold power in the delta, particularly from their capital at Avaris, and this lasts for about 100 and 150 years until finally, again, you have the emergence of a, a strong uh, Theban ruler who creates the new kingdom, uh, and this is the kingdom period of you know Ramses II. Tutankhamun, uh, so on and so forth. And, and again, this goes down to about 1069. So those are the sort of the three great centralized kingdom periods. You know, the old kingdom, when the, the pyramids start to get built, um, the middle kingdom, mm-hmm. it's sort of a high point of literature, and the, the new kingdom, which was extremely militaristic. And in each of these periods, mm-hmm. particularly the middle kingdom, and especially the new kingdom, Egypt kind of flexes its muscles um, and, and increases its, its, mm. its ge- geographical boundaries, into, particularly in the, in, the north, in the northeast into the Sinai Peninsula, which they value for its st- strategic location, as a strategic location and buffer zone. It gives them access up into the Levantine coast and rich, the rich trading and port facilities there. Also, there's a lot of mm. natural resources in the Sinai Peninsula for mining. They obviously are limited to westwards to a certain degree because of the desert. Um, and actually, you know, they're constantly complaining about Libyans uh, uh, raiding the Delta. But the other area of expansion is, is southwards uh, because, you know, into the sort of central Africa, following the branches of the Nile, um, this is what they call Nubia. Um, they also refer to it as Wawat, which is kind of, yes, northern Sudan and Punt, which is the sort of the Red Sea coast. And they're really interested in, in Nubia. Also, they, 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 they established something called a Viceroy of Kush. They're really interested in, in penetrating southwards because it gives them access to gold. It gives them access to ivory. It gives them access to timber, which they're very keen to get hold of. And it gives them access to slaves. And it gives them access to you know various kind of uh, incenses and, and, and sort of valuable exotic goods so you know egypt is constantly sort of flexing back and forwards as as the power of its kings waxes and, and wanes during this 2000 year period but the, you know but effectively we're talking about the nile valley and the nile delta um yeah. patty which which may or not, may not be familiar to, to to your listeners this is is effectively mm-hmm. an anatolian civilization 
So if we if, if we think uh, its capital at Hattusha is is pretty much if you drop a pin right into the middle of Turkey, you you won't be uh-huh. you won't be too far from Hattusha. <laughs> it's um, it's right. it's about ninety miles east of of of, of Ankara. So yeah, it's, it's basically uh-huh. central central Anatolia, central Asia Minor, and this is a, a uh-huh. second millennium uh, civilization that. Uh, emerges as as quite a strong kingdom and then as a true empire towards about 1400, 1350 BCE and really takes over most of Anatolia, um, pushes into what is today northern Syria, the Levant down past Damascus, Aleppo, um, into even Mm -hmm. northern Iraq um, and, Mm. and is pushing against and sort of dominating states like probably Troy, for example, which they refer to as uh, Willusa, um, also pushing up against other Aegean powers and Mediterranean powers like the Achaeans, um, who they refer mm-hmm. to as the Achaeans. Um, and obviously, you know, conflicting with big states like Mitanni and the big um, city-states um, along the Levantine coast as well, like Ugarit and Byblos and Carthage. So, so Anatolia... Anatolia as a, as a region in this region during the Hittite period uh, was much larger than what we would see it today, maybe on like a map where it's like, oh, you know, Eastern Turkey. It's like, no, it would be, you know, all the way out into you know, spanning modern day, many countries, parts of Syria, uh, in, like you said, Northern Iraq, obviously Eastern Turkey um, and, and many other uh, smaller countries that are in the region. Correct. This is this is a Anatolia was a big region at this time. So Anatolia, yeah, I mean, we can think of Anatolia almost as a geographical term, describing the region that is now effectively modern Turkey and northern Syria and northern Iraq. Um, uh, You know, northern Iraq, I guess you're getting into northern Mesopotamia. Again, these are sort of overlapping (laughs) fields. So, you know, Mesopotamia obviously means, is the Greek for between the two, between the rivers, the, the Tigris and, and the Euphrates. So yes, but you know, if, if, if roughly, if, if you have in your mind modern Turkey with sort of large chunks of, of modern Syria, northern Syria thrown in, effectively you've got what was the Hittite kingdom and what came to be the Hittite empire. But what they're doing is, you know, a lot of the time they are taking over city-states and those city-states mm. tend to be located towards the coast or on major trade routes. So they're expanding, and, and you know, the, 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 the empire that they really crush is the, the, the Hurrian Empire, which is Matani, which was this major um, sort of late third millennium, early second millennium power, um, again, which is now sort of modern northern Iraq, effectively, and, and, and eastern Syria. And, and they eventually they defeat the Matanians. And essentially, sort of absorb a lot of their state. Um, uh, you know, later, you know, uh, um, sorry, uh, before that, you're also dealing with the old Assyrian Empire as well. But the Assyrians kind of come and go in a series of, mm-hmm. sort of peaks and troughs. The the, mm-hmm. the Assyrians that people might associate with, you know, the great bas reliefs, and you know, there's the, the mm. British Museum has these amazing Syrian um, artifacts. Most of these are from the Neo-Assyrian Empire, which just doesn't emerge until about mm-hmm. 900, so after Hatti mm-hmm. has collapsed, basically. Yeah, talk about, talk about this time frame of you know, kind of 1650 to 1200 for the Hittites, 
And then they kind of become a lost civilization. And we can talk about it later about how, you know, them writing things down really helps us remember them and not be lost to, to uh, civilization or to, or to history, excuse me. But why, why is it that they were, I mean, relatively, you know, we're talking 350 years, 400 max. Like why was it such a, in the grand scheme of things, such a small amount of time for them? Yeah, it's a a great question. I mean, so they emerge reasonably rapidly um, around, you know, from between around 1700 to 1650. And their own history is is a little bit obscure because we call them the Hittites. um, And that's because they called themselves um, after their capital, the capital of Hattusha. But... This was the this was placed in Hatti land, but the Hittites themselves claim to actually have come from somewhere else. So their the yeah. early kings um, claim to have come from a place called uh, Kushara or Nesha, um, and eventually move their capital the, the to Hattusha um, uh, under a king called Hashush. They've got great names, or the Hittites. They're a bit of a mouthful, of a mouthful <laughs> but their, 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 their first kind of great king that we know anything about is, is a guy called Hattushili I, um, who takes also the name Labana, which may be his father's name, but becomes a bit like the Roman term of Caesar, so that lots of other kings mm. after him are also referred to as Labana or Tabana. Um, but it seems to be a sort of a, a, an honorific. Um, but Hattushili I apparently relocates from Kushara, this other sort of city-state in, in, in Anatolia, to Hattusha, which is in the land of Hatti. And then they simply become the men of Hatti land, essentially. You know? so, so they don't really have a, a, a distinct sort of ethnic identity, as it were. They, they very much just associate mm. of, you know, where they are. And in fact, some of their texts, you know, they seem to refer to themselves as, as their, their language, for example, as, as Nessite rather than Hittite. So they have a very odd sort of ethnic identity or geographical identity. But yes, they, they, you know, they emerge onto the, the stage and begin expanding. Um, from from the, the start, they seem to favor almost like a federal model of government where they'll, well, they'll, they'll, yeah. they'll conquer somewhere. And you know, they're more than happy to sort of install puppet rulers or sort of to govern with a, a reasonably light touch. So it's much more of a, a kingdom through influence and domination than through direct, tight, centralized control. But, you know, one of the advantages is that they are very effective militarily. And, and by about 1350, with the emergence of a chap called Shupilu Liuma I, <laughs> which again, if you've been drinking a bit, it's a bit hard to get out. Um, Shupiluliuma <laughs> the first is one of these great sort of um, generals and, and, and you know aggressive expansionists, and it's really from that time, from about 1350, that the, the it becomes a true empire, and they just kind of explode onto the scene um, very, very forcefully, and they have a series of victories, you know, take important cities like Carchemish, and then effectively. You know, for about you know a hundred to two hundred years, they are the preeminent superpower of of the Near East, and and really, it's only Egypt who can match them, and and, and arguably, in many ways, Hatti is the superior power. They then 
are victims of what is called the late Bronze Age collapse in the Near East, which mm. seems to occur mm. around 1200 BCE. The last evidence we have of the Hittite state functioning as a state and, uh, as the, and the last Hittite great king is from around 1180. Um, from this time, it seems that Hattusha is, is abandoned, burned, mm. destroyed. Exactly the, the processes that that happened, we, we don't really know. But it's very much associated with this movement of peoples called the Sea Peoples, who seem to be migrating mm. from the West and from the North. And Egypt has to fight a series of battles against these peoples and, and survives, but in a much diminished form. A number of important Levantine states, Phoenician states, fall as, as a result of this. Um, and it seems to be this really um, you know, cataclysmic, in a way, uh, a series of events, both probably related to climate, um, certainly related to the movement of peoples, um, that effectively you know, is the death knell for a series of centralized states. Um, and... And, and Hattie is, is, is one of those victims. And really, for around 200, 300 years, you don't have anything on the same scale until you see the emergence of the Neo-Assyrian Neo Empire around 900. So, yeah, so, so Hattie kind of mm. disappears very, mm. very quickly off the historical record. They survive in mm. what is called a series of Neo-Hittite city-states, like Carchemish, basically these, these former... Um, satellites of the Hittite kingdom. And, and so their culture is preserved yeah. to a certain extent. But, um, but after that, even that dies away. And really from, you know, from around 800 to about 1800, <laughs> the, the, we, we know very, very little about them. And uh, it was once thought that they were literally no more than a nomadic tribe um, because of a reference in, in the Bible to a guy called Uriah the Hittite. Um, yeah, and it was just yeah. used to be thought that he was, yeah, just a, essentially a member of a very minor nomadic tribe. Um, when in reality, yeah, this is a is a great superpower. Mm. So yeah, so to round us off here with with the Israelites. So I mean, many people will, you know, there's been different names over the years. You have you know, Hebrews, you have uh, uh, Jewish uh, folks, you, and then you have you have the Israelites right way back. Maybe. You, we can leave this as a kind of footnote, but just so we're talking about the same group of people here, um, the Israelites was was at this period in in um, in BCE. This was the term. I don't know how it got um, switched around a little bit uh, later in in uh, in history, but kind of give us the context of the Israelites um, as a as a people group, and and also I guess maybe here you could probably talk about this. So, so tell us where on the map they kind of resided. And here, just because we're setting it up, maybe talk about this. <laughs> so United Kingdom and then the Divided Kingdom. So there's a split here where, where historically, you know, if you read the Bible, uh, the Old Testament, you're going to have um, 120 years of United Kingdom. This is how the story goes. And you're going to have um, oh gosh, why am I afraid? Saul, David, and Solomon, right? And each ruled for 40 years, United Kingdom, 120. And then uh, at that point, uh, after Solomon, there's a split in 
uh, was it 931? Is that right? Am I getting this right? Um, yep. And uh, you get the kingdom of Judea and Samaria, uh, which pretty much last until, I mean, you know, for, for a while you hear about, you know, Jesus talking about this in the New Testament, et cetera. But um, as you mentioned in the, in the, I think the first chapter for about the Israelites, it's quite contested whether there really was a united kingdom. If it was, it's probably significantly exaggerated. Um, I'm sorry to, to, uh, to make all, all the folks that are believers here that maybe it's not as, as true as they think it is in terms of historically. But um, yeah, tell us contextually where they were in the land, how big of a people group they are, the name Israelites, and kind of these kingdoms of sorts of how it, how it uh, shaped out. Yeah. Oh, right. So for the next eight hours, we will be... <laughs> so this is one of the reasons it took me... It took me like eight right, years exactly. to write this book. But a significant portion of that was getting my head around the literature on early Israel and the Tanakh <laughs> um, and yeah. its, its dating. And I mean, just as, as you know, just, just vast amounts of scholarship written on this, you know, huge oh, yeah. amounts of ink, oh, yeah. ink being spilt. Well, okay, let's mm-hmm. let's let's see see what we can do. Yes, so the Israelites and their history are complex and contested, and I think what really is important to keep in mind is just how much is obscure we, that we mm. just don't know. What I would also say is that without the Tanakh, without the Hebrew Bible we would effectively know nothing about the Israelites. Mm. And I th- again, I think that's mm. really important to keep in mind that pretty much all the evidence we have about the Israelites, about a possible United Kingdom of Israel and, 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 and the precursors to that are from Israelite sources or what is actually, in many ways, Judean sources rather than Samaritan. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you know, but most of the 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 Hebrew Bible was is probably a Judean product. Let me let so me that's, let that's, me let me uh, let me cut in here real quick, because yeah, yeah. I just want to I want to ask I want to ask one thing on this, just while we're on it, just so that we we can get on, get out of the way. I, the, to me, when I when I'm glad you brought that up in the book and, and here now, because there is a how do I explain this? So the whole, the Tanakh or the Hebrew Bible. Um, is is you know what 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 for Christians would know probably as the Old Testament, um, et cetera, is <clears throat> it's holy scripture, right? So like it's not meant to be read. It's meant to be read as you know the words of God to to people directly, you know, direct revelation, all that stuff, specific revelation, and it's meant to be seen as holy scriptures, right? It's not meant to be exclusively read as a historical document, much like uh, other works of, of uh, scripture are not meant to be read as a historical document. Now, with that said, in the Bible, there are, th- throughout, there are various genres of, of uh, in, in the Bible. So you, in the Old Testament alone, you'll have, um, you know, genre of poetry, you'll have prophetic uh, genre, you'll have um, narrative genre, and then you do have what is known as historical genre, but even for the books that are known historically within that genre. So here I'm talking about, uh, you know, Joshua, Judges, First, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings, 
or second Chronicles, uh, et cetera. You know, it's not meant to be read strictly historically because it is Holy Scripture. So there is a, there's a little bit of a different kind of uh, topspin put on that. So I guess in, 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 you're right. If we did not have the Old Testament, we would basically know nothing about the history of the Israelites, which is uh, not so good, I guess, from external sources. But I guess the other thing here is, what are the dangers or what were, what were the mm, obstacles that you were finding and saying, well, all of this is dependent on like literally one source. And that one source isn't even like a scribe writing down the history of this. It was directly from God, of course, right giving to somebody to, to write it. But it's seen as a holy scripture, not as a historical book. Talk about some of the problems, I guess, with that, uh, using it that way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sh- sh- should we just should we just stick to the Hebrew Bible from now on, rather than having to say Tanakh, Hebrew Bible, and and yeah, Testament? you can say yeah, you can say yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, I use I yeah. use the word Tanakh in in in, in the book, but um, Hebrew Bible may, may be easier. Um, yeah, we call it Hebrew Bible because it's it's basically written in Hebrew, apart from some of the final books which are written in Aramaic. Um, but yeah, so yeah, the, the Hebrew Bible is a composite text. As you say, it is, a, it is a conglomeration of lots of different genres, lots of different stories that were essentially um, compiled and edited and re-edited any number of times. The, there has been a huge amount of work done trying to unthread and date and create a chronology for for the texts, but it's incredibly complex. There's a broad consensus now, and it's called the documentary hypothesis, that effectively identifies at least four major schools um, of, of varying times that basically put all this stuff together. Some of it appears to be archaic, so things like the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments, uh, the Song of Deborah, mm-hmm. these, these, you know, uh, through their their syntax and their form, their use of language, seem to be very old indeed. Probably early first millennium, possibly, um, sorry, late, but early first millennium or late second millennium. Other mm-hmm. parts of the text are much, much more recent. Um, you know, sort of five hundred, four hundred, or even later um, BCE. Um, but I think what's really important is to understand that all of this was just constantly being reformulated and re-edited until eventually we get it into a, a reasonably um, static form around 400 or 300 BCE. Again, not entirely static, yeah. but essentially what we have yeah. today is would be recognisable. But mm-hmm. yes, you're absolutely right. This, you know, there are elements in it which are meant to be historical. As you say, I mean, you know, Judges, Kings, Chronicles, these are the sort of the classic um, um, historical works, you know, telling the story of the people of, 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 or the Israelites, the people of Israel. There are other elements which are clearly um, poetic or we might say devotional. Psalms, I guess, is a very good example of that. Um, uh, you know, then you have the, the, the law books um, where, you know, essentially you have the 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 the, sort of the dogma or the or the ritualistic prescriptions of of the of the faith, but as you say, the, all, all of these are kind of squashed together. So it is both a history, a theology, a philosophy, an entertainment. 
you know, it's, it's any number of things. So it's an incredibly complex text. And when, you know, and I think what's also really important that people understand is when we say, oh, well, you know, some of the books of the Bible were composed, you know, perhaps in around 800, other books were composed perhaps in around 600 or 500. It's not just books or even individual chapters. It's literally individual verses within chapters, you know, so, you know, mm-hmm. you know, you know, you know, what am I, Deuteronomy, you know, 21 to 10, maybe one date, whilst Deuteronomy 20, 11 to 14 could be dated to a different century. You know, it is that complicated. Um, however, yeah. it's also an incredibly rich text. You know, we, it, it is unique to, you know, it, it, we have nothing quite like it. And because of the different genres that are represented in it, it provides us this view on a, on a culture, which is both, you know, a deep view because it's evolving over time, but also a view that it reveals various, um, you know, um, preconceptions or, or, or obsessions or fears or interests or hatreds, prejudices, you know, there's so much going on with it. The problem for a historian is that how do you, because of the, the, the difficulties of, of, of dating it and placing it, how do you take any one part of the Hebrew Bible and say, okay, this tells us about the Samarians or the Judeans or the Israelites in the ninth century or in the seventh century? It becomes very hard to do that simply because the piece that you're looking at, the sort of chunk of evidence that you're looking at, may not be able to be firmly dated to a particular century or maybe a composition or maybe a ninth century text that has been completely rewritten in the sixth century. So how, you know, is it telling you about the sixth century or is it telling you about the ninth century? You know, so it, it poses a number of challenges, but it's also an amazing text to work with um, huh. because it is so rich. Um, you know, going back to your, your first question about how much do we know about the Israelites outside of, of the Hebrew Bible? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a huge problem. The earliest reference we have to Israel is, um, is from the Mernatar Stella, uh, an Egyptian Stella from the Pharaoh Mernatar, also referred to now as the Israel Stella. So this is basically a sort of a, a stone slab that was erected, um, often placed on boundaries or could be placed within temples. And were often used to announce victories or warnings. Um, and this dates from around 1200 uh, BCE or about 1210, perhaps. Um, and it mentions it mentions the land of Israel. It, it you know, Mernatar has gone on this campaign into the Levant, and he says that he wastes Canaan, and he says that he he just he says Israel is is wasted. Um, yeah, so he's basically listing all the places that he's destroyed. And that's the first and earliest reference we have to Israel. But what's unclear from that is whether Israel is a people, whether it's mm. a state, or whether it's a region. Because, mm. and, 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 that, and that is really just unclear. And, and there are lots of different ways and, and debates about how to translate it. After that, we basically have no external reference again to Israel until the uh, late 9th century with um, a couple of stellas, but particularly an important one called the Moabite Stella, or the, or the, the Stella of, of, of Mesha, which again claims to have defeated 
um, Omri um, and and defeated the people of Israel or defeated Israel. Um, and actually specifically says, uh, Mesha claims to have destroyed the vessels of Yahweh. And so that's actually the earliest reference to Yahweh that we have outside of the outside of the Tanakh. Um, but again, it's it's very unclear as to exactly what Israel is, and really the references to Omri and the house of Omri. And this is really, you know, how this these kind of people are, are discussed. The Assyrians and the Babylonians, who have very rich texts, again, don't really mention Israel at all. There's the there's the a monolith of Shalmaneser the third that again mentions Ahab of Israel, but the translation is debated. But really, they talk about the house of Omri, which is very much associated with Samaria or the northern kingdom of Israel. So, you know, the, so you know, your question about how much do we know about the unified kingdom of Israel? And as you say, this is this is the uh, this is the the kingdom period where Saul is made king. He uh, then is usurped by David. David's son Solomon takes over, and then. His son um, Ishbosheth takes over, and is and is that then the the, the the unified kingdom fragments into Samaria and Judea. We effectively have no evidence of the United Kingdom of Israel. There's no, there's never been any certain archaeological evidence discovered, and Israel is one of the most excavated areas in the world. There is no mm-hmm. really firm external evidence. The only evidence we have for it is. The stories within the the Tanakh itself, the Hebrew Bible itself. So, it's very difficult to say whether it existed or not. And the problem is, is that the lands it claims to have ruled were quite evidently uh, ruled by other people at this time, particularly Egypt. And we have very good records of Egypt dominating these cities. And so, you can't have Solomon or David ruling a big kingdom um, at the same time as as the Egyptians doing it. Um, and we have far more corroborative evidence of the Egyptians doing it than we do of, of any Israelites. So, hmm. I, I know that even, even uh, among biblical scholars, you know, there's been some uh, debate about the time of the judges. That's always a strange book to study and the veracity of it and uh, there were so many and you know there's some pretty wild stories in in that book uh in the bible and people can go and uh, (laughs) read that book and there's some pretty pretty wild stories in there pretty barbaric and violent ones at that um okay so so we've we've pretty much covered uh the 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 kind of uh the landscape of these three regions um so (laughs) we can we can we can go back to uh just war Right. So uh, as you mentioned, you know, all of this, all this will be very, very helpful in, uh, in, in a bit because we, we'll then talk about each of these in, in, uh, in um, you know, in order here. But uh, when we think about war and we think about just war, um, what are we saying? We can define these things and what are the kind of components of, of just war? Um, and so here maybe you could explain uh, us ad bellum, uh, so the justice or right to wage war, and uh, us in bello, which is justice or the right and the conduct of war. So one is, what is your right to go to war and what is the right while you're in war and why that's important. Uh, so you can just kind of talk about that generally 
and and then and then why uh, we might see some of these early traces of this stuff in uh, in these in these uh, three uh, kingdoms. Yeah. So in if we're talking about sort of our modern developed way of, of understanding the idea or the concept of, of just war and the just war tradition, we usually break it down into at least two categories or increasingly three categories. Um, and these are referred to with these Latinate terms of yeah, jus ad bellum, jus in bello, and now increasingly jus post bellum. So the rights or the justice to go to war, ad bellum, the rights or justice in war, in bello, and increasingly the rights or justice after war, post bellum. So, and and these categories, I mean, they're they're modern categories in, in as far as, you know, nice, neat, terms to, to, to describe them. And actually, even though we use this, this Latin terminology, the, the specific um, ascription of, of each category to, to these, these Latin terms is actually quite modern. It's really 20th century. But these, these are Latin terms that the Romans did use and incorporate, um, but not sort of quite so conceptually neatly in these sort of umbrella categories. But, um, but they're useful tools for us to, to organize our thought and, and to think about um, how people think about war. Uh, so, so to begin with, the, the jus ad bellum, and this is really where we find the earliest evidence of engagement, whether you know, so ethical and legal and theological engagement with, with the problem of violence. And this covers criteria such as just cause. So why... Why would you go to war in the first place? What is the cause? Now, the classic cause would be self-defense, for example. Yeah, whether self-defense mm-hmm. of person, mm-hmm. self-defense of territory or state. Um, but it may also be something like defense of allies. It could be for the restitution of property. It could be for vengeance of injuries, whether injuries to yourself or perhaps against your gods or God. So these these are very much enshrined under this idea of use, this category of use ad bellum. Uh, what's also important to consider here is the authority. So who has the authority to say, we're going to war? Now, if I go out in the middle of the street tomorrow and say, I'm waging war on, <laughs> I don't know, Iceland, right? Because I don't like their <laughs> volcano that's blowing up. Obviously, no one would, 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 would listen to me and, and they would think I was crazy. But if the prime minister of the UK said, you know, I'm going to go to war or took that to parliament, then that would be a very different prospect because he has executive authority. He has the sufficient authority to do that. Of course, in the period that we're talking about, it's really the authority is vested in, in kings. And, and for most of history, that, that, that authority has been vested in kings. So, so ideas about... Authority and cause are really central to that use ad bellum criteria. Later, with um, really the emergence of the Christian tradition, so you know, into, into the first millennium uh, common era, we get this idea of correct intention. So you, in order to uh, properly declare war, you have to do it with the correct intention, and that is an intention basically to see justice served, to defend the innocent, um, to to serve the community rather than to serve yourself. So, you know, hatred, um, lust for dominion, venality, you know, profit, none of these are what would be regarded as correct intentions. But that's a, that's a later development. 
Just in bellow is much more focused on how you conduct yourself inwards. So, for example, are there certain weapons you can and can't use, certain weapons that are illicit or illicit? In the modern period, obviously, biological weapons and chemical weapons are seen to be a different, you know, it seems to be morally worse and therefore they're prohibited. Um, there are also ideas about how you distinguish between combatants and non-combatants. You know, should we treat soldiers and civilians differently? Are they, do certain people have immunities, whereas some people are, are, are liable to harm? Um, should you respect certain buildings? Are churches, you know, sacrosanct or mosques, sacrosanct temples in general? Um, should you treat prisoners of war in a certain way, or can you just execute prisoners after battle. So in other words, these are norms that are attempting to govern conduct um, and, and to perhaps restrain or regulate conduct in some way. And then this idea of just post-bellum is, is a much more um, modern idea in many ways. And this is the idea that the victor, even in victory, has a certain obligation to the defeated. So for example, you know, do we leave the defeated to starve uh, or to you know, die of you know, um, exposure or you know, whatever it may be? Um, do we have an obligation to help rebuild their society, um, to provide aid? Um, so these, th these, are, these are the three categories of ad bellum, in bellum, and post bellum that are really the foundations of modern just war thought. And modern just war thought has introduced important things like proportionality. Yeah? So that would be both an in bello and an ad bellum concern, potentially, that you know, if you have been injured, are you going to do so much damage to your, in, to, your, to your enemy in response that it's simply not proportional to the original injury? Yeah? You're going to kill thousands more people than they killed of yours or destroy thousands more acres of land than they destroyed of yours. There are also ideas of likelihood of success. So again, then this really reflects on, is the war worth it, I suppose, both for your own population and for the enemy? So you know, is, it, is it morally acceptable to declare a war that you cannot win um, or that there's no really likelihood they will ever come to an end? Um, you know, arguably the war, the so-called war on terror after 9-11 was a classic case of well, what is the likelihood of success? Can you defeat terror? What is terror? Yeah. So these are, these are much more modern concepts that are still very much within the, the remit of just war theorists, uh, what, what just war theorists are, are interested in. But in the ancient world, we can forget the post-bellum stuff. We're really thinking about your sad bellum and to a certain extent, your in bellum, but to a much, much lesser extent. I guess the, the question I have here is, is that this is for people that are sort of um, adhering to just war. Now, a just war is one thing, but there is also war outside of a just war, right? Sometimes people don't really care that much about rules or, you know, they don't care. I mean, you know, maybe that's where it starts getting into this line of, is that war? Is that terrorism? Or, you know, whatever other way you want to describe it. But you know, this is you're you're talking about this framework in, in a just war m model, but what about regular types of war? Where it's like, is this isn't a just war. This is just, well, 
it's war. It's not. It doesn't have to be just war. Do we do we see distinctions there either in the modern period or 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 uh, previous periods? Yeah. So I would argue that in pretty much any period of history and pretty much anywhere you look, if people are engaged in mass violence, sort of communal violence, they want to think of it as justified. They want to think because people like to think of themselves as good. There are very few people who. <laughs> You know, just like, oh, I'm a horrible person. I'm completely evil. I'm going to, you know, I, you should condemn me. The gods should condemn me. I'm definitely going to go to, you know, hell, whatever it might be. And, you know, that's, that's just how it is. And let's go fight. You know, yes, you get you know, psychopaths and sociopaths in, in any civilization, in, in any place. But as a general rule, people and communities like to see themselves as good and, and, and moral and abiding by the, 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 the system of uh, or the rules of their own culture. And so I think of war as the reason why people start thinking ethically about war is that it inverts a lot of social norms. So, you know, if we mm. if you think about how a community works, you need some degree of you see you need some idea of justice. Yeah, if if you know St. Augustine says there's honor even among thieves. And Cicero, he was paraphrasing Cicero. Cicero says that even, you know, the evil and, and the wicked have rules amongst themselves, some level of justice. Effectively, you know, communities are complex. If everybody didn't trust, you know, if everyone distrusted each other, if everybody just used violence, you know, ad, you know completely uh, as they wished against each other, that community would not flourish and it wouldn't survive. And so every community needs some sort of system of justice to regulate those interpersonal relationships. And most of that is basically trying to limit violence, right? It's trying to have peaceful, stable, secure relations within that domestic sphere. But the problem sure. is communities also rub up against other communities. You know, hmm. That's sort of the political realism, they call it the anarchic system. And so whether through necessity, because they're being attacked, or whether through desire, because they want to gain more resources, communities find that they, they fight wars. But the problem is, if you have a, a moral and an ethical system, which is really focused around limiting violence within the community and saying that violence is bad, you know, we have the earliest law codes we have from the early second millennium BCE are very explicit about homicide, for example. So, you know, we know that early communities condemned murder. How do you then turn that on its head and say, actually, it's fine. You can go and kill these people. All the people that we've been telling you not to kill for, you know, your life, ignore that and go kill them. And not only go kill them, but also risk you being killed. I think that's something that we often forget. You know, you, you, have, to, you have to explain and rationalize to people why they should kill others, but also why they might themselves be killed, why they, why they should risk their own lives. So I see mm. the, so the, the, the beginning of the ethics of war really as a sort of a communal coping mechanism, a psychological coping mechanism of communities who are trying to rationalize and sacralize, you know, according to their religious beliefs, and explain this need or this urge to go and commit massive levels of violence and yet still feel good about themselves effectively and, and still think, oh, well, you know, I can go back to my family afterwards. I can still 
you know, be in favor with the gods. I'm not going to, I'm not a bad person. It's this sort of intellectual process, which is trying to rationalize what is often an irrational activity because it's incredibly dangerous and it might not actually be worth it for some people. Um, so I, mm. I, I would disagree. I, I think there are very few people who, or few communities who just think of themselves as fighting and just, you know, purely for profit or yeah. purely for desire. Mm. You know, there's all the old, the old uh, sort of maxim, or uh, that's not really a maxim, but the, the old sort of saying is that, you know, everybody thinks they're fighting a just war. That's the problem mm. <laughs> with it in lots of ways. <laughs> everybody claims to, ju- to, claims to be defending justice. Everybody claims self-defense. Now, somebody may be right and somebody may be wrong, but everyone to themselves is, is a just warrior and a just community and has a just cause. Um, so I, I think mm. it's really important. I think it really goes into the sort of the fundamental psychology of communities yes. and, and individuals within communities. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I really like that last point because, you know, I think a lot of the times we hear about war and there is a, the, the, the rationale or where people feel justified is there is a kind of, not always, but there can be a religious uh, element to it, right? Not, again, not always, but um, but uh, but there there certainly is that enough. So, I want to. What we can do is, what well, we we can we can talk about some of these big themes because in in the book, in each of the three uh, 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 people groups that you discuss, you kind of traverse the same topic. So we can kind of do the topic and then kind of talk about each of mm-hmm. the the groups um, under it. But before that, one of these things is is that. Wh- I'm curious about what did kind of war look like in the ancient Near East? So again, this is pre-modern um, era. This is pre-even like uh, kind of the major religions we see today. Uh, of course, there are some that are still there, but um, this is very much before. And so, you know, do, do we see people, you know, many people, let me give an example. So like, for example, nowadays we have a lot of technology you know, we have drones and, you know, flying aircraft and we have, you know, before that we had trench warfare and before that we had the, the ones where, you know, what was in the Revolutionary War? People just like march toward each other and shoot each other. Like, um, you know, there was, there's all these different iterations of war. So like, I guess, what did war look like in the third millennium or second millennium BCE in the ancient Near East? Were these like massive hundred thousand person armies or were these just like skirmishes? You didn't. You do mention in this part the importance of chariots coming along. I mean, that has to be such a strange, at least for our mindset. How do people get in chariots with horses, just you know, hacking people down? Like, I guess, what did it look like um, in times of war in this period in this region, just generally? Yeah, so yeah, it's a great question. Um, in, increasingly sophisticated, um, and there's definitely a difference mm. between the resources, the military resources that a state like Egypt. Or Hattie could could muster versus the resources of say a small city state or you know, the, the early the early Israelites for example. Um, but effectively, it's it's a visceral experience. Um, the, your your main infantryman, as it were, would be carrying a, a spear and a shield. Um, probably, if they were lucky, with some sort of bronze hand weapon as well. Uh, perhaps a, a, a sword or a dagger or uh, an axe, you know, in, in the early um, 
third millennium, so you know, old kingdom Egypt, where we're still um, very much talking about Stone Age warfare, um, as 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 bronze is also appearing. So you know, you're getting bronze weaponry alongside things like yeah, stone axes, stone knives, stone maces, um, flint-tipped arrows. Um, but yeah, your average sort of infantryman is very much a spearman with a shield with very minimal armor. Um, archery is absolutely fundamental. Um, you know, we have bows from uh, you know t- ten thousand BCE. Um, so, and archery is depicted again and again and again on all sorts of monumental art throughout the Near East. Um, it's mm. not you know we have this later. Um, Greek idea that archery is somehow a cowardly weapon, uh, the bow is somehow a cowardly weapon and sort of goes against the sort of the hoplite in his armor. That's not there at all in the Near East. The, the, the bow is an elite weapon as much as it is a common weapon. Kings fire bows as much as, as, as common soldiers. Interestingly enough, though, the, the Egyptians actually refer to their main enemies as the nine bows. So, you know, mm. So they sort of use the, the, the bows as a as a as a as an enemy, but also you know, pharaohs are depicted shooting arrows from chariots and things like that. So so certainly archery, certainly spearmen, um, jav- light javelins as well would have been used quite extensively. Um, and for Egypt at least, they made use of a navy because they used ships basically to to sail up and down the Nile. Um, the chariot emerges. In basically Anatolia, northern Anatolia, around the early second millennium, and works its way southwards into Mesopotamia. This is the proper war chariot. We have earlier kind of Sumerian chariots, which effectively just like donkey carts <laughs> that were used mm. to, you know, transport people into battle. But the proper, the full war chariot, yeah, emerges in the first half of the second millennium and eventually arrives in Egypt. Egypt is, is actually quite backwards in terms of military technology. It often gets things last. And it adopts them from Mesopotamia and, and the Levant, where you have all these warring city-states and, and empires. Um, and, and that very much, cha- the, the chariot very quickly becomes the hallmark of the elite, obviously, because to, to master a chariot takes a huge amount of time and effort. So you've basically got to be a, effectively a full-time warrior. Um, and to afford the chariot itself obviously takes resources as well. So this occurs really from about 1600 onwards. You have a division between the chariotry, who are these kind of shock troops, and the infantry and missile troops. Um, but with the chariot, we're not entirely sure how they fought on it. It's possible they fought, well, they, they almost certainly shot bows and threw javelins off the back of it whilst their driver was driving. Egyptians have a two-man chariot. People like the Hittites and the Assyrians tend to have a three or four crew chariot, so like a heavier chariot. But it also seems possible that they would have dismounted to fight hand-to-hand as well. So a bit like the battle scenes that we read in the Iliad, where these heroes yeah. you know, sort of drive into battle, get off their chariot, and then engage in hand-to-hand combat. But again, it's 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 we're not entirely we're not entirely sure. In terms of the actual types of warfare, set piece battles remain quite rare. These sort of the, you know these ideas of like a big you know huge army facing off against each other 
These are quite rare, and, and they, they're always rare, really, throughout history, up until the Napoleonic era, effectively, because they're really risky. You know, on the whole, people won't um, commit all their forces to a pitch battle unless they're very confident that they're going to win, because, you know, as, as, as soon as battle begins, you know, fortune, the wheel of fortune spins, and, and who knows who's going to win. So what we see mostly is raiding, Effectively, you know, highly mobile raiding columns who are targeting non-combatants who are plundering effectively and, and making as much profit as possible, destroying enemy property, um, and also sieges. We, you know, in this period, military technology in terms of artillery is very basic. There are some references to uh, battering rams. There's probably some uh, basic siege towers, or there are basic siege towers. But really, you know, if you hold yourself up in a well-fortified city, you have the advantage. Um, and, you know, we, we know from, say, somewhere like Jerusalem in the 6th century, it took the Babylonians two years to, 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 to sack Jerusalem because they couldn't get past the walls. And I would, I would stress that the modern walls of Jerusalem are Ottoman. They're, they're 16th century. They're not the ancient walls, but this was clearly a very well-fortified ancient site. So, so yeah, I mean, there was, for an invader, there was a certain amount of, um, there was a certain motivation to, to seek a pitch battle because otherwise their quarry would just run into the cities and then they'd have to invest mm. a lot of time and effort and money and to, to besiege that city and their troops would probably get disease. You know, more soldiers have died of dysentery and disease than have been killed in battle over, over the years. So, you know, the, yeah. the invader would probably be trying to provoke a pitch battle, perhaps. The person who was being invaded would very much prefer to probably sit in their cities. Um, but also, we're, we're, we're talking about raiding, you know, this, this kind of maximum damage, maximum plunder approach. In terms of sizes, you know, from the mid-second millennium, uh, sorry, from the mid-third millennium, the, the Egyptian Old Kingdom, you're probably seeing the emergence of what we might be called a standing army, numbering in the thousands. Um, by the time, and, and, and gradually army sizes increase, by the time we get to, say, the 13th century, there are tens of thousands going to war. The, 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 one mm. of the largest battles we, we have um, on record is the Battle of Kadesh in 1274 BCE, fought between the Egyptians and the Hittites. And it's this huge, ba huge battle with all their allies and their vassals, huge amounts of chariots. And the Egyptians say it was a glorious victory. And the Hittites say it was really hard fought. It was probably a stalemate. The Egyptian sources claim that the Hittites brought up to around 40,000 troops. Um, mm. And Ramses II, the Egyptian king would probably have brought something similar now those figures have been contested you know some people say that's way too much there's no there's no way but um someone like anthony spallinger who's who's very much a, an expert on egyptian military history thinks that this is reasonably persuasive so you know a battle of up to 70 to ninety thousand troops was possible i think um but incredibly rare and and certainly not the norm, and that certainly represented the 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 peak in terms of army sizes. I think for most campaigns, you're talking 
you know, Hittite armies or Egyptian armies, you're talking probably 5,000 to 10,000 troops for a big campaign. For an Israelite army, whether Samarian or Judean, you know, maybe in the hundreds of, of, of troops or perhaps, you know, a thousand infantry at most with, with perhaps 50 odd chariots, 100 odd chariots. So it's uh, army sizes, you know, even up to the, you know, the European Middle Ages have always been notoriously difficult to, to be exact about. Um, and mm. that's, that's certainly true for the ancient world as well. It's, it's, it's very fascinating how these ideas that we have of modern warfare, but how it was a little bit different or how it looked a little bit different. Uh, I know that there's some people that really get into the weeds of, you know, Civil War or, or World War II kind of tactics and stuff. And so obviously we probably don't have great details about this stuff from this period, but it's very interesting to get some ideas about what it kind of looked like. So <clears throat> let's talk about uh, I think the biggest thing that will be really Im- interesting and important here, because they're all a little different, is uh, kind of two combined things. So I guess the first, one of the most important things, as you were talking about for um, Us et Bellum, is, is, is what is the, um, not even the motivation, but what's the kind of license to go to war? What is the, the, the right to say we have, uh, we're justified in going to war? And this has to do with authority, right? Uh, whether you want to say a moral authority or what have you. And, and this authority becomes supremely important in all of, in the three of these different um, regions. And, and you usually wrapped up with either um, ideas about cosmology or metaphysics or things like that. So, for example, here you have for the Egyptians uh, these ideas of uh, these three tenets of their royal ideology, right? Which is cosmological role of order, chaos, universal semi divine authority of the pharaoh, and superiority of the land. And so, kings and pharaohs are seen as authority from the gods. They have a semi divine status. Very, very interesting in Egypt in terms of authority. A little bit different for the Hittites. They have this kind of um, this monarch that is, you know, grounded in divine appointment. You can talk about that. You can talk about the storm god there. And then, really fascinating with this is the Israelites. Everything is from Yahweh, right? Everything is from you know God, right? You know Jehovah, you know, uh, and and even Israel is is you know I am who fights or whatever it is. And I mean literally very singular, right? It's literally God says you go, you rape, pillage, destroy, you know, take them out. That's it. Like, you know, and, and even, even finding consequences, again, this is all based on the Hebrew Bible, but consequences of when they didn't or didn't do it exactly as, you know, he said, they got also punished as well. So it's just very interesting. The, the different groups, how they found or where they found authority from going to war. So thematically, and you can go in and out of this as much as you want, it makes sense, but where did these three uh, uh, regions and different times, Egypt, Hittites, and Israelites, find the authority or the justice for going to war at different points? Mm, yeah, great question. So it's almost universal. Uh, yeah, it's, it's universal in the Near East at this time. The, the ultimate authority 
for for rulership and certainly for for the authority to to go to war comes from the divine. You know, whatever the the pantheon or, or the, the theology is, it is the gods who provide that authority, and, and that's where it sort of begins. The differences are in the relationship that the various cultures see between the, their king or their ruler and the gods. So in Egypt, there is an incredibly close connection made between the, the pharaoh, the king, and, and the divine, to the extent that he is frequently referred to as the son of gods, the son of Horus usually, um, although that changes in, in different times uh, with people like Ra and Amun uh, uh, being also important. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of debates about whether pharaohs during their lifetimes actually claimed to be gods themselves. They were certainly seen to ascend to godhood at death. But there's a little, you know, there's, 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 there's scholarly uh, disagreement about the extent to which they were divine during their life. But certainly that relationship was incredibly close. They are, they are effectively the mouthpiece of the god. They have a totally unique relationship with the divine, um, and they are seen as the divine's anointed ruler, and they rule through that, that power. And that's reinforced by you know, various religious rituals and going to temples and so on and so forth. This is also because of the duty of the pharaoh or the role of the pharaoh as the defender of something called ma'at. Now, ma'at is uh, both a, a concept and a goddess. And it's the concept of order and creation and justice and stability. So basically, all these positive attributes are wrapped up in this concept of ma'at, which is represented as a goddess, as I said, and also represented as a feather. Now, this is opposed to a destructive force that is unjust, and chaotic, and associated with the foreign and the non-Egyptian, referred to as isfet. So this battle, this sort of dualism between ma'at and isfet, which is very much seen on a cosmological level as happening in the heavens and, and sort of really embedded in every facet of life, is, is also interpreted as happening on a terrestrial level. So i.e., you know, Egypt is Ma'at. Everything that isn't Egypt is Isfet. And so the defense of Egypt terrestrially in war against non-Egyptian peoples is absolutely the equivalence of the defense of Ma'at on a cosmological level against this dark principle of Isfet. And it is the pharaoh's sole and most important, well, not sole duty, but most important duty, and he is the sole guardian of Ma'at. So his defense of Ma'at is, is absolutely pivotal to his place as pharaoh. And he is endowed by the gods with the authority to do that. So, and this has a, an incredibly you know, empowering effect in terms of, justifying Egyptian warfare, because not only is defending Egypt on the land an important uh, duty, it's seen as you know, literally defending the universe. You're, you are battling against the forces of chaos by battling against Egyptian enemies. So it's an incredibly potent authority that's endowed with 
Pharaoh. Now, of course, we also have to take this with a pinch of salt because this is all royal propaganda. <laughs> okay, so this is the thing that we have to remind ourselves yeah. that you know, <clears throat> the, the, the periods where these ideas are expressed most forcefully are the periods of centralized monarchy. And often the claims to this level of authority become louder and louder and louder in periods where in reality on the ground central authority is being threatened. So we have to see it as a, sort of a, as a propaganda tool, as an ideological assertion to essentially support centralized power. And actually, if you, you know, I think if you look at the history of just war thought, the connection between just war claims and particularly claims of authority and centralized power is a very, very close relationship. The two go hand in hand. You, know, you see the emergence of centralized states mm. and you see the emergence of complex mm. just war thought. In Hattie, it's similar in terms of um, the king is seen to be appointed by the gods. He's seen to rule at their stead. He is their mouthpiece. He is their chief priest, as it were. He has a, a whole raft of cultic duties to lead the rituals, you know, to keep the gods in favor. However, there is a much greater sense that the king himself is subject or is, 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 um, is capable of error and is capable of behaving incorrectly or badly. So in other words, in, in Egypt, you get this sense that the king and the gods are basically a unique, have a unique relationship and no one else really matters. That's, you know, he is their mouthpiece. And, and the king is never going to be abandoned by the gods. He can't really do wrong because he is, everything he does is basically just an expression of this divine inspiration. In Hattie, it's not that simple. In Hattie, it's very much he has, the king has a series of duties and obligations and a way of acting in defense of the state, in defense of the state's cult and theology, in defense of the state's people and interests. And while he does that, while he sort of, uh, come, you know, while, whilst he um, is successful in executing those duties, that is evidence of the fact that the gods still favor him and, and he is still the appropriate you know, ruler. It is possible, however, to have a king who clearly isn't up to scratch and isn't performing his duties appropriately. And therefore, it's possible that that authority can be seen to be taken away, that the gods would prefer someone else. Now, again, we need to think about this in light of the fact that actually usurpation was a, a perennial risk to Hittite rulers. Many Hittite kings are usurped or assassinated. So this may be a kind of a, a, a development in political theology which allows conceptual space for getting rid of a king if you don't think he's, he's good enough. But, you know, on the whole, if he's, if he's you know, doing a good enough job and, and, and is ruling in accordance to what the gods want, then the authority comes from the gods to the king. What is interesting, though, is that when the Hittite kings go to war, they still have to present their case to the gods. They were an incredibly legalistic culture. And so the Hittite king couldn't just assume that the gods approved of any military venture. He instead literally presented the wrongs done to the Hittite state 
by their enemies, called upon the gods to adjudicate, and called upon their support in seeking justice and vengeance in response. So ultimately, the authority is still coming from the divine, but it's a much more complex relationship between the divine and the Hittite king. And there are more chances of it going wrong, I suppose, and more chances of that authority being taken away. With the Israelites, as you say, it, it is all about Yahweh. The, the authority for, for war, the authority really for any political action, is all rooted in Yahweh. But what's interesting about the Israelites is that in terms of their interest in righteousness and their interest in justice, is very much a personal relationship between the Israelite people, as it were, and their God. And this is founded on their covenant, this idea that if the Israelites are essentially you know, faithful to Yahweh, don't uh, worship any other gods, then Yahweh will favor them and, and give them boons, and particularly the, the land of Canaan, obviously, most, most obviously. Now, that isn't tied to kingship necessarily, because you know, in the, the Israelites, their history of themselves was not founded in monarchy. It was founded in these sort of charismatic leaders, whether that's Moses, whether that's someone like Joshua, you have this period of judges. And actually, you know, there's, there's, there's plenty of uh, examples within the Hebrew Bible where prophets, you know, let's like say, don't elect a king. You know, the, 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 it's it's going to be bad if you, if you elect a king. And essentially, the, the eventual election of Saul is, is purely a pragmatic um, or presented as a pragmatic decision as a military decision because, you know, to, to, to fight um, the, the Philistines and, and, and other enemy competitors. But as long as the individual war leader has Yahweh's favor, is anointed by Yahweh, then they have the authority to wage war. But again, if they break the covenant in some way, if they are seen to go against Yahweh's wishes, then Yahweh's authority can, can disappear incredibly rapidly, and someone else will be anointed in their stead, such as David. You know, the, Saul's authority is taken away, and David is said to have been anointed instead. And that's why you get the civil war. Um, and that goes through into the, the, the separate kingdom periods as well in Samaria and Judah. But it's all, it all comes back to Yahweh, um, and to, to, to the extent that, as you said, that if Israelite war leaders disobey Yahweh's commands, if they keep booty, for example, if they don't sacrifice all the men, women, and children to harem, to, to slaughter, if they don't sacrifice all the goods, you know, or if they make a peace treaty that, that when they're meant to have you know, killed an enemy king, then they will be punished for, for that. So Yahweh is very much seen as an active presence in, in Israelite warfare to the extent that they have these rules around, you know, not, not masturbating in the army camp, not, um, you know, defecating in the army camp because you can't pollute the camp. That Yahweh is literally thought of as walking between the tents, as it were. So Yahweh is very much there in a, in a sort of a, a, both a, a divine form, but also in a kind of a real physical form. Um, as, as the, the beginning and the end of authority in war. And really, the, the, the human individual who has, who has the anointed rule at any particular time, whether it's a king or a judge or a, a war leader like Joshua, is, is 
is almost, I wouldn't want to say quite irrelevant, but it doesn't, that relationship between authority and kingship that we see in virtually every other state in the Near East is, is not there in Israelite material. So uh, in hearing all of this, I, 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 I fully get it. I guess, and, and, and to be fair and respectful, I mean, it, I, I understand that these are, this is what's written down. I understand these are the stories. I understand this is, in some ways, propaganda. And I understand that maybe that's what people really kind of believed, right? I, I get all of that. But at the end of the day, there's no voice talking to somebody from heaven above telling them to go do this. That, like, that didn't happen, right? That didn't. At the end of the day, you had human men deciding we're going to go to war with this person. I'm going to say it's from on high or from there's divine appointment or that, yes, it's this. But there, there's, that's, the reality of it is, is this stuff didn't actually happen, right? People believe it happens or even maybe the, the, the rulers themselves believe it you know they they got a feeling inside one night and they said tomorrow we're gonna go and take over this town and you know this is from whichever god that's fine like i understand that but that's not what actually happened though they decided (laughs) to go and kill all these other people in these other towns no i understand the story i understand the propaganda and it look it's good propaganda because we're still talking about it 5,000 years later, <laughs> right? But like <laughs> that didn't actually happen, right? Like when you look at the, again, we don't know these things, but the biography of these people, when we look at the, 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 the temperament as much as we can know about these rulers, that's more instructive, is it not, about why they're going to war or their belief system. But there, there's not some divine you know, deity that's actually appearing to them and telling them these things. I mean, how do, how do we understand that piece of this really as well? Yeah. So I think there's two elements. There's, there's the element of the sort of the personal, I guess you, what you're getting is the sort of the personal psychology of, of war leaders. Um, and the second element yeah. is how you present your actions to posterity. Because of course, all of these yeah. descriptions are post factum, right? They, the, they're describing events that have taken place. Um, so in terms of the psychology of war leaders, yes. I mean, that's obviously very difficult to, to, to approach as a historian because psych- psychologies are, are, are hidden. However, what's interesting is that a, a lot of the material we have was not designed for public consumption. So these records um, were produced and would have been displayed in highly restricted areas of, say, temples or palaces. And in some cases were cultic objects that were produced by the king. Yeah, I mean, he would have had a scribe produce them for him, but were essentially deposited in temples as a almost personal communication between the king and the god. Now that tells us, something about how they thought of themselves as still having to justify their action to their deities. You know, the, 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 it's, it's because there's, there's nobody else consuming this material. So why, why produce it? You know, so they obviously thought it was important to have to explain their actions. And often it's not explaining their actions, it's glorifying their actions, 
right? They're, they're, they're claiming credit for these things. You know, they're saying, I, I've done my duty as a king because I've conquered this city and enslaved these people and brought the idols to, to our temple and, and laid them low and look how great I am and therefore look how great you are as, as the divine. So I think they see their action. I think they see their, the divine acting through them. So, and, and the divine is very much given credit for victory in war. So, you know, a lot of war booty was then deposited in temples, right? Because you gave your God part of the booty because without your God's favor and aid, you wouldn't have won the war. So I do think there was this idea of self-justification. Now, you can call it self-delusion, you know, absolutely. But if you are completely embedded within a cultural and a religious system where you believe these things are 100% real and you believe that the gods speak to you through dreams or just simply through urges and, and actions, then you can start to see how they think that, well, okay, maybe today I decide to go to war, but why, why do I feel that today? Oh, it must be the gods making me feel that today. So you can start to see how they rationalize it and explain it in their own minds. Now, of course, this is all, you know, it has to remain speculative to a degree, but I still think we can see this today. You know, people will try to justify and explain and rationalize their actions in all sorts of ways. In terms of the, the second element, in terms of how they present it to posterity, I think this tells us a lot about the moral opinions of, say, how things like massacre or enslavement are viewed. Like I said earlier, much of this material is propagandistic and it is glorifying these actions. There is no, you know, when they talk about going on a campaign, burning cities, killing hundreds of thousands of people, because it's always, you know, it's always hundreds of thousands of people. It's always, you know, vastly exaggerated. Enslaving people and bring them back to temples, taking plunder. These things are not, you know, they're not mentioned in a guilty way. They're, they're, not, they're, not, they're not ashamed of by these actions. It's the exact opposite. They are glorifying these actions and, and using these actions as a way to not only show their own magnificence and their own rights and righteousness, but of course, by extension of their God's magnificence and, and righteousness. So, you know, again, it, we have to think about it in a very different way as, as to how we think of it as, as atrocity today. Atrocity in these sources is very much seen as a positive thing because it, sh it shows complete dominance over your enemy, which shows your superiority over the enemy. And if you are superior, it means that you must be right. So, you know, there's this idea that might makes right, absolutely. But also this idea that right makes might. That, in other words, you have to be righteous in order to be victorious. And if you're victorious, you must be righteous. So that the two work actually in, in concert with each other. So, and, you know, and, and, and people seem to value. I mean, the, the, the problem is we don't know what the average person thought in ancient Egypt, in ancient Hattie. In ancient Israel, we know very little about the psychology, the interests, the beliefs, you know, the, 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 the hatreds, the loves of the average person. What we have is a, is a view on elite culture. Um, uh, really, the Tanakh, in, in some ways, the Hebrew Bible is, is the only exception to that because many of the elements within the Hebrew Bible are not royal sources. 
you know, some of them are, but you know, a lot of the you know, sources there are produced by this kind of scholar class, um, probably post-exile, uh, you know, after they, they come back from, from Babylon and come back into to Judah. And, and so they're an elite, you know, illiterate class, but they're not necessarily royal. And they're trying to reconfigure their history in the wake of humiliation and defeat. And so in some ways, well, it's not particularly surprising that they look back to the past and they want to write about these you know, incredible victories and how they annihilated enemy peoples and how they were the greatest, because it's a, you could say it's a coping mechanism for the complete defeat and failure of the Samarian state and the Judean state. And it's, you know, they're, they're mm-hmm. harking back to a better time. But of course, it's also mm-hmm. all doomed because... They know how the story ends, and they try to explain that story and explain the failures by again highlighting the breaches in the covenant with Yahweh. That it's Israelite defeat is never couched in terms of the justice or the righteousness of their enemies. Their enemies are never righteous and they're never just. They are simply yeah. tools used by Yahweh to punish the Israelite people. When the covenant is strong and the Israelite people are pious they win. When the covenant is breached and the Israelite people are seen as impious, then they are, they suffer defeat and failure at the hands of these, these, well, in the Middle Ages, they would have called them a flagellum day, flails of God. So, yeah, I mean, it's about, it's about how you want to present your, your, your victories um, to your people as a way of creating identity as much as, as anything. But I think it's really important that there was no shame attached to these what we would think of as atrocious acts, quite the opposite. These are, these are, these are reveled. These are boasted about because they're seen as evidence of why well, you must be righteous. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'll just say here, I think there's a big danger in having that propaganda embedded within tradition and culture from millennia and, you know, it's passed down until today. I think there's just a big danger anywhere, anywhere that that's seen. I think there's a big danger with that. There's a very big danger because it does embolden you to feel very justified and not even justified, but to, to basically brag about it, essentially. And there's, there's, a, there's, there's some big dangers to that. So um, the, the, the other piece here is, is about, so lots of themes, so we won't cover all of them, but another big one here, a little bit more, well, sort of, <laughs> a little bit more rooted in, in, in reality of sorts, but uh, is, is this idea of self-defense, right? And self-defense in terms of, you know, defending your own people, let's say, but also in some ways, de- self-defense of, of land, right? So you talk about this with, in, in the Egyptian case, right? You give this, the, for, for idea of, of self-defense is super fascinating, is how it's defending the land of Egypt. And they, they have this, the, the land of Egypt and the Nile region is very tied with cosmology. You can chat about that if you want. Mm-hmm. And also defending Mott, right? And so you, you, that a comparison to jihad is more accurate than, let's say, the Christian Crusades, which is, which is very, very interesting there. You know, with the, with the um, you know, obviously with the Israelites, it's a little bit, again, it's kind of the same story, right? God says, you know, your Yahweh says, you know, you go, you defend the land. It's your land. I've told you it's your land. It's, it seems a little bit more uh, linear in that way. 
but with the with the um, uh, the Hittites, it starts to become the Hittites are fascinating because there's, there's a little bit there's more complexity there because you start getting into uh, military ethics, really, right? Of this uh, element of reciprocal kind of justice. There is this role of guilt, right? There's this role of you know, things are more permissive than restrictive. Uh, and there seemed to be more of an early ethical framework in their military actions than anything else. So this is a little bit of a difference here with the Hittites, which is fascinating to me as well. So yeah, talk about uh, self-defense, people land, and, and um, or in defense of, of deity, and, and where we start to see, in, especially in the Hittite case, this kind of beginnings of a kind of ethics or or a type of understanding of, of what it could be for the other side you're, you're killing, where that starts to come online as well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I would say defense of land is absolutely pivotal throughout all these cultures because, you know, we, what we don't have a sense of in this period is a sense of human rights or the, you know, the innate worth of the individual. You know, in many ways, these, these rulers thought of their own people as disposable and... Um, Kind of like cattle in, in a way, uh, so it was it was land in, in many senses that was was more important to them. Now that's what sort of defined the, their kingdoms. On the other hand, land and boundaries were very dynamic. The, the, again, Egypt was unusual in the sense that its natural geography and topography defined it as a recognizable unit centered on the Nile Valley. Uh, and the Delta region in a way that, say, the um, Mesopotamian or the Levantine city-states really weren't defined, you know, where these boundaries are much more fluid. But yes, you know, Israel, uh, sorry, Israel, um, the Egyptians, uh, or the Egyptian kings at least, and, and the text that we have surrounding them, very much viewed Egypt as, as an entity that was mirrored in the heavens. And so defending Israel was defending its sort of mirror image in the heavens and was defending this, this idea of art. And so any defense of that was absolutely justifiable. Now, the, the, in the, the, the comparison with the, the Islamic idea of jihad is, is possible, I think, to a certain degree. Where, so in jihad, you have this, this idea of the, the Dar al-Islam and the Dar al-Hab. So the house of Islam or the house of peace. And outside of the house of Islam is the Dar al-Hab, which is essentially the, the house of, of conflict or, or, or war. And in some senses, that is similar to the Egyptian concept of Egypt being the sort of the house of Ma'at, as it were, the house of peace and stability and order, and the house of Fet of war and injustice and chaos. So there is, I think there is some a nice comparison there. There is also a sense within Egypt that although you get a huge amount of xenophobia, you know, the texts, you know, they, they always talk about the vile Asiatic, you know, the the the, the terrible uh, Nubian, these these Libyans who are invading, you know, their their texts drip with xenophobia. On the other hand, yeah. we also have lots of evidence that they were happy to integrate peoples into Egypt. That you could effectively, if you entered Egypt and abided by Egyptian customs and ritual and, and, and perhaps language, you could be an Egyptian. 
So there wasn't a clear, although they were xenophobic, it was more of a case of us and them rather than a necessary an ethnic basis to that xenophobia. So it's not, in other words, so it's not directly comparable to our modern ideas of racism, that one could enter Egypt and become an Egyptian if you essentially ascribe to Egyptian culture and cultural norms. And therefore, when Egypt mm. expanded and expanded its influence and power, even though it was expanding way beyond the Nile Valley, that was the house of Ma'at, right? Wherever Egyptian rule existed, wherever the pharaoh was, was the sovereign, that was the house of Ma'at. Much like, you know, we see the expansion of the Islamic world and the expansion of the Dar al-Islam against the Dar al-Hab. So I think there is, it's kind of useful comparison, I think, for, uh, to, to think about it. The, the, it breaks down in as far as, you know, is, you know, is Islamic theology and Egyptian theology were radically different you know, from, in, in many, many ways. So, um, so you, know, you can only push the, the, the analogy so far. But it, it's a nice way to think mm-hmm. about it. With, with the, the, the Hittites, because they don't think of their wars on quite the same cosmological terms. You know, for the Egyptians, war is very much a zero-sum game. You have to win. You have to annihilate the enemy because the enemy embody destruction and chaos, and it will be the, literally the end of the universe if, if they win. Right? At least that's what that's, that's the impression the text give. The Hittites don't really take that opinion. They don't see their wars quite on the same cosmological level. They certainly see the divine as as involved, and as I said, they see it as kind of like a legal process. War is sort of like a court process where you present your case to the gods and the gods decide and and weigh in on your favor hopefully and then you win the war but they don't seem to view their enemies as as theologically perilous um, apart from perhaps uh, the a people a nomadic people called the Casca who are kind of northeastern Anatolian up towards the um, Caucasus and and they're the sort of the perennial enemy of the Hittite state and they sort of they, they burn temples to the storm god Teshub and the sun goddess of Arina, which are the two major deities of the Hittite pantheon. But the Hittites have a very inclusive sort of policy, both politically and culturally. They become known as the land, it becomes known as the land of the thousand gods because when they take over a new state or a, a new city or a new region, they don't, they don't, they don't kind of uh, enforce any kind of political, uh, sorry, any kind of theological um, dogma or doctrine. They effectively just assimilate these gods into their own culture and into their own pantheon. So for the Hittites, war is, I would say, much more political than theological. Mm. And it's much more mm. pragmatic. Um, and there's not this cosmological imperative to completely annihilate your enemies. And actually, another feature of Hittite war is that they were much more interested in labor, effectively. The Hittite state was always short on manpower. So a lot of Hittite wars focused on essentially obtaining slaves and obtaining potentially future auxiliary troops. So they were much more focused on kind of preserving life for labor rather than just for butchering people for some theological reason. So that's, that's, that's one element which perhaps... Um, differentiate the, the, the two approaches. The, in terms of your, your you know, questions about reciprocity, the 
the, the principle of reciprocity was common throughout the Near East, the idea that if you act well, you know, you'll, you'll receive good consequences. If you act badly, you'll receive evil consequences. That's, that, that, that's reasonably common throughout the Near East. But the, the Hittites very much take that into their politics as well and into the actions of their kings. So there is this idea of inherited sin. So the sin of the father passes on to the son. And obviously, we see this later in the Hebrew Bible with the idea of you know, the original sin. Um, but this also applied to kings. So you know, if, if, if a previous king had committed a sin, then the Hittite state as a whole and subsequent kings as well, because the king represents the state, would suffer punishment for the sin until penance was, 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 was uh, performed effectively to the appropriate God. And again, you know, we immediately see a difference here, this idea that the, a Hittite king could sin. Yeah, that, that's completely absent in Egyptian royal propaganda, completely absent in something like Assyrian or Babylonian royal propaganda. Kings don't sin. Kings don't do things wrong in those, in those royal uh, cultures and those, uh, the political thought of those cultures. In Hittite political thought, kings could do things wrong. And again, perhaps this goes back to you know, the number of usurpations and assassinations. You, know, you had to sort of justify taking the crown because you know, the previous king had done something wrong. And the, what, what happens is that we start to see evidence of Hittite kings critically examining the actions of themselves and their forebears. You know, sort of mm. an honest or critical self-reflection in order to, try to, mm. try to explain problems that the Hittite state is experiencing. So, for example, there is a, a very elongated period of plague that absolutely ravages um, Hattie in, um, the, in the, sort of the, the, uh, the, the 13th century. Um, and the king, and it goes on for decades, and it kills a huge amount of people, and the king, Mashili II, creates a series of what are referred to as plague prayers, and, and they're, they're preserved on clay tablets, where effectively he is presenting his, his um, apologies and, his, and, and talking about his attempts to understand what he or his forebears have done wrong in order for the Hittite kingdom to be punished and the Hittite people to be punished in this way. And he goes, you know, he, he says he's consulted augurs, he's taken oracles, he's sent all his scribes into the royal archive in Hattusha to, to look through all their historical records to try to find out what they've done wrong. And he goes through a series of, he says, oh, it must be this. And they try to do, you know, compensation for that and then the plague still goes on. And at one point, he, he, he talks about a treaty uh, created by his father, Shupaluliuma, um, with Egypt. And he says, and he, he identifies that his father broke this treaty. So he violated an oath. And, and the Hittites took treaty oaths extremely seriously. Like I said, they were very legalistic. And all the oaths were to the, to the gods of the country. So if you broke a treaty oath, you broke, you violated your oath to the gods. And even within the treaty text, there's usually, it usually sort of explains that there'll be lots of horrible consequences if you do this. But he says, you know, my father broke this treaty oath, which meant that he waged and, and waged war against the Egyptians, which means that, that war was an unjust war. 
And he says, you know, are we being punished for the crime of this war? So he, he admits the possibility that a Hittite king could fight an unjust war. There's another example um, from uh, a later reign um, where the king is writing to the king of Ahiyawa, the, the, the king of Mycenae, um, about a, a conflict they got into uh, over um, the island of Cyprus. Um, and he says, you know, he basically writes this letter and he says, you know, oh, well, you know, I was young and I was, you know, full of braggadocio and I insulted you and effectively the conflict was my fault. And he, and he, and he apologizes and says, you know, a brother king should, should be friends. So again, we have this admission of guilt about, you know, the causes of a conflict and an, and an apology. <laughs> He's actually, you know, uh, this, this great king of Hattie is, is apologizing to the king of Mycenae. Again, this is absolutely inconceivable that this would have happened with an Egyptian pharaoh or an Assyrian king, um, or you know, any Hittite ruler would, uh, sorry, any Israelite ruler would have apologized to an enemy ruler. And so it's this sort of self-critical self-reflection that the Hittites seem to be capable of that I think is the first real evidence of what we might think of as really sophisticated just war thought, this, this admission that justice is not purely the monopoly of your people, your state, and that in international relations, you know, another state might actually have a grievance against you, that you might have done an injury to another state. And what we're getting towards, therefore, is, is a more objective and less partisan view of justice um, when it comes to warfare. And that really is uh, really important and a, and a unique step the Hittites make. It's just very interesting. It's just very, I mean, again, it's, it's, it's the Hittites continue to, 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 to fascinate me. They're a fascinating uh, group uh, that, you know, obviously yeah, they're, they're only around for a short amount of time. And I wonder how much of that lives on today in, in, in current Anatolia and currently in Turkey and the people there and things like that. It's just very, very interesting. I want to, I want to talk about um, uh, how well, what's it because I kind just, of, can I just come in there? Yeah, yeah. Just, 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 uh, just as, as an uh, as an addendum to that, you know, Hittite thought survives in the Hebrew Bible. There has been a lot of mm. work, um, particularly by a scholar called Mendenhall, who has shown that the covenant texts in the Hebrew Bible are, in terms of their formula and and their framework and even their language, are basically taken, not quite word for word, but they're extremely similar to Hittite vassal treaties. So the way that Hittites constructed these legal international treaties between themselves and their vassal states, effectively, the, the, the Hebrew Bible took those formulas and replaced the Hittite state with Yahweh and replaced the vassal state with the Israelite people. And that's, you know, that's mm -hmm. very well established. And there are also Hittite laws. We have a Hittite legal code that survives, again, in the uh, Hebrew Bible, the, a, a, a series of laws that are literally taken verbatim. You know, there are laws about, about things like uh, rape and theft that are word for word copied from the earlier Hittite texts. Now, the real, mm -hmm. um, 
the real uh, sort of million dollar question is how that happened, right? Because the Hittite state collapses in 1200, and yet these uh, Israelite texts seem to be probably from around 800 at the earliest. What seems to have happened is that the Hittite states and the Hittite um, legal system survived in neo-Hittite city-states like Karkamish and then were adopted as the Israelites emerged onto the scene you know, a few centuries later. So the Hittites do survive, actually, in, in very, very real and obvious ways within the Hebrew Bible. Mm. Yeah, no, that, that, I mean, again, that's, well, there's a lot to say about that, right? About, you know, some of the plagiarism or, or, or if we want to be charitable, the uh, adoption of these things, whatever you want to describe it in the Hebrew Bible. But I guess the, the, the other the piece here, so I want to talk about uh, how these groups treated uh, combatants and non-combatants, prisoners of war, civilians, etc. Um, so maybe we can do that with the Egyptians and the Hittites. And then we can save that because I kind of sort of towards the end want to talk specifically about the Israelites because there's a lot of stuff that you talk about with the Israelites and you, you, you kind of, we can, we can park for a little bit, a segment of this in Deuteronomy 20, because that's, that's huge for much of the thought for, for, for Israelites and, and for the, for, for the Hebrews. So two, one question here before we get to the, 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 the uh, treatment is, <clears throat> Uh, kind of about this idea with how you mentioned it a bit ago about just, just briefly, just culturally, how, and, and ethnically, how did the Egyptians handle other uh, tribes or people groups or whatever? How did that, you kind of mentioned earlier that they would kind of sort of, if, if people essentially assimilated within Egyptian culture, that that was there, but different with the Hittites, because as you mentioned, they don't, they didn't really coalesce around being a people or a nation of a specific ethnic identity. Rather, this is kind of city triad. There were uh, dynamics of political, economic, and cultural centers and things like that. So there's much, very, very, their social cultural dynamics is very robust and, 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 uh, and, you know, I think, as you said, a little bit more developed. Um, so we can hold off on the Israelites for a minute. With these two groups, how, how did we understand how they treated other groups or their uh, views or thoughts on, yes, their xenophobia, but also how did they pragmatically uh, think about uh, uh, ethnic groups or cultural groups uh, that were different from, from their own? Mm. Yeah, so I think it's really important to differentiate between sort of ideal, as it were, the the the, the concepts that are expressed in texts and images, and perhaps the, the reality. So, you know, starting with Egypt, the ideal is that all foreigners are wicked across the board. There is no such thing as a good foreigner. They're all re- they're described mm. as wretched, miserable, barbaric. Um, they are the antithesis of civilization. Therefore, there is absolutely no reason to spare them. And actually, in war, you really want to destroy them because it goes back to these cosmological ideas that you, you have to eradicate yeah. chaos, right? So, you know, the, the texts talk about slaughtering them in their thousands and hundreds of thousands. Um, there are texts that talk about um, burning them, sort of immolating them alive, of um, killing children, killing women cutting open their bodies. You know, ev- 
it, absolutely no sense of restraint at all. Um, the only sort of element of restraint would be enslaving these people en masse and, and dedicating them to the temples back in, back in Egypt. That's, that's the, the ideal, as it were. And again, it's you know, worth stressing that that is the ideal. You know, that, that's the so-called righteous mm-hmm, good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's how you should be treating these people. That's what's boasted about and, and mm. glorified and, and, and seen as very positive. Mm. The, the reality seems to be significantly different because we know, again, from you know, just very everyday records about you know, the, uh, different trades and, and people uh, being used as mercenaries, that actually there was a whole host of different peoples um, employed in trades throughout Egypt, including Libyans and Nubians and um, men of Retenu, which were sort of uh, Syria-Palestine. Um, all, all these people who are so-called, you know, cosmological threats, existential threats, were actually integrated into to Egypt as 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 economic assets, as it were. And the Egyptian army, again, we have this idea in the text that it's the Egyptian army full of Egyptians fighting non-Egyptians. But when we actually look at the sources uh, in a bit more depth, we see that the Egyptian army is full of auxiliaries. Um, it's full of mercenaries. And, and many of these auxiliary troops would actually have been defeated enemies who were mm. brought to Egypt, given land, and sort of kept on a reasonably short leash, but then allowed, then basically encouraged to fight for Egypt, often kept their own armor and arms, a bit like what you see in, say, the late Roman Empire, where you have these, you know, Gauls fighting or, you know, Iberian peoples fighting, Goths fighting, or, you know, they, they integrate these people into their own military systems. So there's, there's a big difference between the ideal of how you treat the other and, and the reality. Pragmatics plays, plays a role here, right? The, I'll come back to that in a second. In, in Hattie, you also have texts that say, you know, I, we, we slaughtered, um, 100,000 of the enemy, and I burned their city down. But it's the, 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 the degree to which the texts indulge in that sort of rhetoric and, and that sort of histrionic language is far less. You know, Hitt- Hittite texts are far less grandiose and verbose about how many people they've slaughtered or how many things that they've destroyed. They're actually quite laconic in some ways. Um, they don't seem to be embarrassed about claiming to have killed, you know, they often refer to a multitude of the enemy. But equally, they don't indulge in it. And, you know, people, you know, you could compare them to, say, Assyrian texts that, you know, really seem to sort of revel in this sort of grotesque slaughter. And, you know, you have this bas relief showing people being skinned alive and crucified and things like this. That is really absent from the Hittite material. They're quite matter-of-fact about their military uh, ventures. Um, and again, like, as you mentioned, they are much more open to this idea of integrating peoples into their, their kingdom. What they seem to be interested in is a, as a legal contract that you, you, you create these vassal treaties, you pay tribute to the central kingdom, and you give a military levy. And as long as you do that, they're really, they don't seem particularly bothered. You know, they're interested in 
their interest in slaves and tribute and basically just a, pol- a political uh, domination. As long as you play by the rules, you know, a Hittite army is much less likely to try to slaughter everyone. I mean, there doesn't seem to be it doesn't seem to be a theological or a political or a cultural requirement that they talk about. Or, or if they do, it's, it's really quite rare. Um, so that's very different to the Egyptian um, sort of uh, justifications. That being said, there's absolutely no obligation in Hittite ethics of war to be nice, as it were. Yeah, There's, mm. there's no obligation to show restraint there's no obligation to do anything. The victor basically gets to make the rules across the board mm. in the Near East. There is zero obligation to, 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 the, to the defeated as a sort of a human individual. And actually in Egypt, when they talk about prisoners of war, they use the same language to describe a human prisoner of war as, as, a, as an inert piece of booty, you know, as, as, a, as a gold cup or a piece or a cattle or a you know, piece of livestock. Um, and so, you know, and, and prisoners of war completely lacked any legal status. They effectively became sort of non-human almost. Um, but the, the, the pragmatics of all this is that, you know, you can have an ad bellum tradition, which essentially gives you total carte blanche, that gives you complete freedom to do whatever you like and even encourages you to be as brutal as possible. So the pragmatics of it is that, A, we're talking about a non-mechanized period of military history. So to kill, mm. you know, if you want to go and kill 2,000 people, that means you literally have to go and, you know, cut their throats or stab them in the back or whatever it may be. You know, that is that's hard work. It's labor for your army. And it's probably, you know, pretty traumatic even for the most grizzled veteran to sort of slaughter, you know, 100 people. So it's, it's time-consuming. And really, there's very little profit in it. You know, those people are far more mm. valuable alive than dead. They're far more valuable either as slaves mm. you can sell or give to your soldiers yeah. as, as, as basically pay. Um, mm-hmm. Or you can keep them alive and they will stay where they are and become tributary. Or you take them back to your home and you integrate them into your own military system. So there's also a, a pragmatic element of keeping rulers alive. And we see, again, we see the Egyptians doing this, even though their rhetoric says, says, elsewise, says, says otherwise. You know, that if you defeat somebody and then install them as a puppet king, like, you know, hostage taking was very common, you, you know, you, you take their heirs, whatever it may be, then, then you have power over them. You know, if you, if you butcher them, uh, you risk someone else coming to power who may be less... Um, uh, less susceptible to your control. So we have this complete sort of reversal of what we might expect, that in terms of the moral justifications of war, you have a completely permissive just ad bellum tradition that's really reinforced mm. by theology as much as anything. That nullifies any in bellow tradition. Uh, you, know, you, you just don't have any moral obligations in war at all. And yet, pragmatics probably were actually a restraining hand, and 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 mm. and that's very much the opposite of today's views, where it's seen that it's actually the ad bellum, you know, you're you meant to apply certain rules and limits, and actually we think of the in bellow practices as, as failing those levels of justice, and we're very disappointed when mm-hmm. we see war atrocities. 
it's, it was completely the opposite way in the ancient world. They basically said, yeah, you can do whatever you like, but in practice, they may not have done. Hmm. It's just interesting how this, this treatment of, of people, <laughs> the ideal is horrific, right? You know, but, you know, to absolutely decimate them and just wipe them out. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of genocidal in some ways. But in, in other ways, it's, yeah, we're not going to be able to do that. We're just going to have to have the pragmatics. This is going to take a lot of work. This is kind of tiring. Like, this is an investment. You know what? We'll just incorporate them. It'll be fine. And that's just, a, you're right. It's just totally different from kind of how it is nowadays. And it's, it's very interesting how, how those things are reversed. But again, you know, you know, different with, you know, the modern age versus, uh, you know, kind of pre-modern, which is, which is, is very, very unique. So obviously we'll, 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 we'll kind of end with, you know, peace. So before we get there, let's spend a little bit, uh, a brief bit on, on, on the Israelites. Um, Mm-hmm. So you spend time in the book talking about the significance and the importance of uh, Deuteronomy uh, 20. Uh, now, let me make a, a kind of uh, uh, footnote here. Of So Deuteronomy is also a... Mm, <laughs> It's a challenging book for biblical scholars for a variety of reasons. <laughs> it's a fascinating book. I will say that. It's probably uh, the most fascinating. Uh, there's a lot of things within Deuteronomy that are somewhat contradictory. There's d- differences between Numbers Leviticus and Deuteronomy in terms of laws. Uh, and then I think there's something about authorship and then all these other. There's just, there's just a lot of, it's a fascinating book. It's a very fascinating book. Um, I think, I think some of the, you know, most people see Leviticus as kind of the book of like rules and laws for the Jewish people. Uh, but Deuteronomy is also very much ensconced in rules and laws as well. And and the kind of comparative pieces between Leviticus and Deuteronomy are very interesting. So as I'm, as I'm saying, you know, most people will know <clears throat> within the Hebrew Bible, as we talked about earlier, it's kind of broken up in certain ways, but the kind of holy, holy kind of books are what I'm describing as is the Torah is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, um, is somewhat kind of, uh, known and kind of, I guess, popular ideas as written by Moses, but most people agree that it was not written by Moses. Uh, <laughs> uh maybe parts of it was or whatever, and, you know, you know, all these things. So that's, those are different, uh, debates for uh, other people to have. But Deuteronomy 20, as it, as it con, um, you know, is, coalesces with what you're describing here in, in the book, is you know, there's a general context for the Torah in Deuteronomy itself. But what is it about Deuteronomy 20 that kind of gives the, the embello regulations, right? So when you're in war, and how were they, how, the reason I'm setting this apart is how was this you know, similar or more dissimilar from other, uh, the other two groups that we talked about? And, and why is this so important in, in understanding how, yes, Yahweh would, would, would tell the Israelites when to go to war, but it's really this in Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy 20 that's really kind of laying it out there. So just talk to us about why this is such an important part of, of, the, uh, of the Torah for, for, for this concept. Yeah, so the reason uh, I, did, I was pretty interested in Deuteronomy 20 is that it's often pointed to 
as one of the first quote unquote laws of war or evidence for laws of war um, and laws, uh, so rules of engagement. Um, and it, it, it basically, you know, it talks about the Israelites going to war and, and how they should wage war and particularly talks about how they should behave when they come to a city that they want to attack or, and, and, lay siege, and lay siege to. Um, and, you know, sort of uh, articulates a, a, a series of um, rules, including uh, offering them uh, the chance to surrender, um, not uh, destroying uh, fruit-bearing trees, um, and then how to behave with um, the, the, the war plunder in the city uh, after it has been uh, taken either by submission or by uh, by sack by by um, escalate. Um, mm. Now it's usually pointed to as a series of laws of war. A because uh, it said that you should give the the enemy an opportunity to to surrender. Um, so that's 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 argued that this is evidence of of, of mercy being shown um, and 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 an avoidance of, of bloodshed. Um, and that the, the, the prescriptions regarding trees um, have been uh, discussed in, in regards of respecting basically enemy property um, and preserving, you know, environmental, um, so almost like early environmental protections, I suppose. Um, Deuteronomy 21, I, I also discuss as well, which is perhaps worth mentioning, which has also, again, been pointed to in terms of non-combatant um, rights. Um, it talks mm -hmm. about the integration of um, female captives into the Israelite community. Um, and it says, essentially, that you should give any captured, captured woman uh, a month to grieve her parents, assuming that they're probably dead, um, and that you should um, change her clothes and pair her nails and things like that. And after that, that time of mourning passes, you can then take her to wife or, or as a concubine, and, and that she has she has to be treated in a certain manner. She has certain rights as a result of that. And again, this is pointed to as a kind of early uh, an, arch an archaic uh, sense of uh, the rights of the prisoner and a certain amount of a female um, immunity. Now, there's, there's been a huge amount of, of, of ink spilt about both these, these, these passages, um, but I, I interpret them as very much not ethically informed and very much uh, a product of, again, military pragmatism. So, you know, looking at Deuteronomy 20 and, and the provisions for siege warfare, I think what's really important to understand is that there's a distinction made between cities within Canaan and beyond Canaan. So this is, again, Deuteronomy is probably a 7th century product of, of the, the King Josiah's uh, reign, perhaps even later mm -hmm. um, than that, but mm -hmm. it's meant to be Moses. Um, so this idea that you know, Canaan has not yet been conquered, right? the seven nations have not yet been destroyed. And so there's, there's a distinction made that you know, if, if it's a city within Canaan and, and you're fighting the nations, then you don't offer them any submission because all the nations have to be annihilated. That, that's, you know, it's very clear <laughs> throughout the Hebrew Bible. And so mm -hmm. this, this offer yep. of submission is only given to uh, cities outside of Canaan and who are not part of the seven nations. 
So again, that sort of is, is, is slightly problematic. But I think what's more problematic is the idea that actually this, the so-called offer of mercy is simply an offer for enslavement. That actually the, the, the surrender that Deuteronomy talks about, if you look at the Masoretic text, it says it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a submission to forced labor. Now, there is some discussion about how to translate that, whether forced labor is interpreted as tribute, so you, you, you surrender and you become tributary to, to the Israelites. But there's also a convincing case made that forced labor is exactly that. It's, it's slavery. So the degree to which you can say this is an offer of mercy, um, when you're really talking about the enslavement of the entire city, um, is, is debatable. Um, there are also prescriptions for things like the, the offering of, of the um, inhabitants up for harem, which is mass slaughter, if they're part of the nations. The preservation of the fruit trees, again, I see as purely pragmatic in, 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 in origin. If, you're, if you want to conquer a city and integrate it into your land, then chopping down all the orchards and fruit-bearing trees, which will take you know, 20 years to regrow, is a massive diminishment of that city's economic resources and, and use. And effectively, mm-hmm. you're, you're, in a way, you're nullifying its, its value for you as a, as a conqueror. So again, you know, this idea of environmental protection coming from some sort of ethical source, I think is highly debatable. And I, I see these things as, as, as purely pragmatic. In terms of Deuteronomy 21, again, there's some really interesting work that's been done on this by um, scholars like Susan, Susan Nidich. Um, and I kind of really uh, agree with much of what she said. This idea that the, the female captive is being afforded rights, I think, is highly dubious. And I think what you, you have to read Deuteronomy 21 as a concern about uh, pollution of the Israelite community and, and taboos. So you're taking effectively a non-Israelite woman and integrating them into the community. And it has to be said that, you know, there's only certain types of non-Israelite women who are allowed to be integrated in this way. Um, yeah. And the, 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 the space of a month um, is provided for because it's enough time to see if that woman is pregnant. Because what you don't want to do mm-hmm. is integrate a woman who's already pregnant with a non-Israelite um, into your community yeah. and therefore have a, a non-Israelite sort of a baby who, who is a potential source of corruption. Um, and pollution and corruption are recurrent themes throughout the whole Hebrew Bible. Also, you know, you can say, even if you, even if you were being extremely generous and saying, okay, well, they are really concerned about providing this, you know, this traumatized young woman a month to mourn her dead parents, she's still being raped after a month. <laughs> you, know, she, you know, she's yeah, still being right, subjected right. to sexual abuse. Um, so even yeah. if you take the most generous option possible, you know, it still doesn't um, protect that woman from from being forced into either concubinage or, or a forced marriage. So I'm 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 very dubious about talking about Deuteronomy 20 or 21 as as ethically motivated laws or restraints, and much more about pragmatic military concerns and pragmatic taboo based concerns about the 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 potential pollution of a non-Israelite coming into the Israelite. Community. You know, and we were talking earlier about the the theological need um, to eradicate the enemy, and and really the Israelites take that to the nth degree. You know, the the you know for anyone who's who's familiar with with, with the Hebrew Bible, they will know it's it's incredibly brutal. 
and there is this theological imperative that you un- you annihilate and you massacre your foes. You and social status is irrelevant. Kings are you know kings are murdered in the same way that commoners are murdered, and this is all done at the specific command of Yahweh. And when you have examples of kings showing mercy, like Saul, for example, um, this is actually ground for Yahweh's punishment. Yeah. The, the, so you know, basically, yeah. if you don't kill the people you're told to kill, then then Yahweh punishes you. Now, obviously, you know, I think most of these stories are not historical; they're stories, but they're stories articulating an ideal and articulating a theological um, a concept of the necessity to destroy people um, and the superiority of the Israelites over all others, and and it. They're all coming back to this relationship between the Israelites and Yahweh, the only thing that matters, and everything else is really a threat to that. So this sort of imperative towards annihilation. And when kings, when you kind of get glimpses perhaps of real practice, and when kings are pragmatic and they want to, you know, they don't want to destroy all the gold or they don't want to kill all their enemies, you know, this is probably actually a glimpse of reality that, that these sorts of actions um, are very counterproductive in most cases. Yeah, I mean, listen. The uh, if I if, if I if I if I'm if I'm uh, kind of generous here, um, if I give a charitable view, it's like, well, that could have or may have been the case for other uh, people groups or kingdoms or things like that. But we don't have as much uh, detail as we do because we you know we have the full Hebrew Bible and things like that. So, you know, we don't have the Egyptian Bible that has 66 books written over 2000 years and et cetera. We don't have the Hittite, you know, Bible that's got, you know what I mean? Like there's not, you know, it's not preserved in written text. We certainly have things for sure. I, I mean, obviously you detailed this in the book and everything, but there is a rich kind of uh, information there in the Hebrew Bible to pull from. So that said, though, um, what we have is a genocidal uh, deity that is obsessed with, again, per the, the, the Hebrews of the time, of having them have particular land and have particular kingdoms and to have particular kinds of ways of doing things at the expense and justifying the slaughter of children, women, I mean, complete genocide. And as we've pointed out a few times, if you don't, then you're going to, you know, your head's on the stake, you know? So it's, I mean, that is... And I'll just make a kind of footnote to that. You know, a lot of people will say, try, there's lots of things that people do with, with, with theologians and stuff with, you know, well, well, you know, the New Testament's different and, you know, it's God of forgiveness and blah, 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 blah. But it must be stated that for, for Judeo-Christians or for Christians, Jesus said he stood by everything that Moses, that's in the books of, 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 of Moses and the Torah and the Hebrew and the Old Testament, as did the Saul and the Apostle Paul said that anything afterwards doesn't invalidate those things. So, you know, again, you, you can't have this, you know, this, this, this deity that is absolutely just genocidal in the Old Testament and justifiably so is, is the, the claim. And then you just have a completely different kind of de- the same deity, apparently. And then, you know, it's completely different, you know, a couple, couple millennia later. I mean, there's just, it, it's, it's really barbaric. And the thing about that is, 
as as I mean, this might just be kind of something by happenstance for you, from your book. You know, reading. Look, there's nothing. It's, it's it's completely fair to say that the Egyptians in the third millennium and the second millennium BC <clears throat> also xenophobic. You know, pretty barbaric. Blah blah blah. Uh, the Hittites again, a little bit more nuanced, but again, they had also. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're uh, conquering other people groups and things like that. But when you see the, maybe again, it's just all the information we have, but when you see the Israelite story next to those two, there is just a kind of natural, like, wow, that is so much worse in a lot of ways. Or, you know, how it's told or how it's like, wow, that's terrible. That is absolutely terrible. And in the Bible, I mean, you know, doesn't pull any punches. I mean, they absolutely get into detail. Uh, of how these people are killed and how it was, you know, it's just, it's just, it's pretty remarkable in, 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 in a, in a sense. Um, so I want to, I, I, go ahead, go ahead. What do you, what do you have the thought? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I was, yeah, I was, I mean, I, no, I, I, I think that uh, a lot of that's valid. I would also say though, that first of all, I think in practice, you know, if we could go back to, you know, two and a half thousand BCE or one and a half thousand BCE, whatever it may be, I think in practice, there was probably relatively little to differentiate Egyptian, Hittite, Judean, Samarian, Assyrian, Mitannian warfare. You know, I think probably mm. that you could assume that there would be very, you know, it would be brutal. You had no guarantee of living if you were prisoners. You were probably, you know, you probably might, you're probably enslaved, um, but you might not be. You, know, you couldn't take anything for granted. It was a case of survival, and if you survived, then 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 who knows what what might happen to you. But you know, apart from certain actions and certain locations and certain times, that were probably done as as pieces of political theatre for monetary purposes. You know, so basically terror tactics, scaring other enemies into submitting and, and saving you the, the 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 hassle of having to go to war against them. Um, I think on the whole, probably most warfare looked pretty similar, regardless of yeah. the, you know, the levels of rhetoric that you see in, in the sources. The, the, the thing about the Israelites is that, yes, I mean, you're right, that in many ways, of all the material we have from the ancient Near East, perhaps with the exception of some of the Assyrian sources, the sure. Israelite material is the most brutal uh, in, in, in terms of exactly what is required of rulers and, and, and the punishments that they have to meet out on their enemies. In saying that, I also think it's the most detached from reality because most of the, the most ardent Yahwist material, this kind of the monotheistic material, was almost certainly inserted reasonably late in this period of redaction, particularly following the exile, particularly following the, the, you know, the, the fall of Judah and 587, 586 to Babylon, and then the return of those Judean exiles um, uh, with, under Kirish, the, the, the Persian king. You know, and this is when a lot of the, the, the Hebrew Bible is rewritten and the, 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 um, the, the heterodox, as, as it were, elements, the, 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 you know, the, the, the references to other gods are excised. And it's this rewriting of the whole story of the Israelite people as a monotheistic people right from the get-go. Now, that, that clearly wasn't true. And that's clearly the older elements of the Hebrew Bible were not written in a monotheistic culture. 
that that is how the post-exilic writers, uh, the redactors, want to present the case. And so they're presenting this God as demanding, as brutal, as victorious, as powerful, as a way, I think, you know, as I mentioned earlier, of coping with the reality of complete defeat, effectively. And yeah. Mm-hmm. So they can say, you have to murder all your enemies and burn children and women, knowing full well that there's not going to be a requirement to do that. You know, so in a way, it makes right. it easier. Right. Right. Um, and, and yeah, they're, they're sort of clinging on to this, this lost glory and rewriting their history to give them this, this glory and this complete power over their enemies, right? To, if you're going to go and butcher everybody, it, 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 it says that you have complete power over your enemies. But they're writing that in a period where they have no power whatsoever. And so I think, you know, of, of all the texts we have about brutality, it's, it's, the, it's the Hebrew Bible that we have to take with the biggest pinch of salt, as it were, that, that actually these are, mm. these are very far removed from real military events, I think, in many or most cases. Yeah, yeah. So just a few more questions here, because uh, you've been so generous with your, with your time. Uh, maybe we can just briefly uh, summarize uh, each of these, these, category, these groups. Uh, you know, the Egyptians have a kind of, you know, as you say, a black and white, just war moral tradition. Uh, we've talked about the complexity and forward thinking notion of the Hittites and their ethical thoughts on war, more legalistic, more pluralistic and objective. And then the Israelites, you know, they have, again, uh, some pretty strong notions, very much dictated by Yahweh. Uh, what, what's the kind of summary of each of these kinds of uh, uh, groups, both the, of the uh, Egyptians, the Hittites, and the Israelites on just war? Yeah, so uh, Egyptians, deeply chauvinistic, um, absolutely morally absolute. Uh, <laughs> sorry, that didn't sound very good to say. So the Egyptians, deeply chauvinistic, morally absolutist, saw war and life and politics in terms of black and white, of good uh, against evil, order against disorder, and effectively were incapable of uh, conceiving their enemies as having legitimate grievances against Egypt. All Egyptian wars effectively were justified and were all effectively defensive, even wars that were patently offensive and aggressive in nature were, were very much conceived as defensive, as this defense of Ma'at against Isfet. Hittites, very, very different in lots of ways. Yes, they were chauvinistic in, in some senses. Yes, they were more than willing to justify wars which we would say were essentially for plunder and were essentially for aggrandizement were much less absolutist in terms of painting the world in black and white moral terms and sometimes capable of taking a critical look at themselves and how they behaved within international relations and understanding that actually their enemies might have a grievance against them because ultimately they were much more... uh, aware or lacked the same level of self-confidence as, say, the Egyptians, that their gods would always support them or that their king was always the mouthpiece of the gods. And that, you know, when they felt military defeat or when they felt famine or plague, they very much saw this in terms of 
the failings of their state, potentially of their monarch, and so had to understand what had caused it and therefore had to also seek a way to correct it. Um, and one of the ways that they could correct it might be to identify a, a, a political error that their ruler had made. In Israelites, we see very much, in, in, to an extent, a, a mirror of the Egyptian system, where Yahweh is effectively the equivalent of the pharaoh or the, the divine pharaoh. Again, deeply, deeply partisan and chauvinistic, incapable of um, believing that their enemies could have a legitimate grievance or could possess justice, but also saw themselves as capable of sin, like the, like the Hittites. So in a way, the Israelites are a blend of the Hittite and the, and the Egyptian. The Israelites could err, uh, they could commit crimes, but those crimes and those errors were only important in terms of their relationship with Yahweh and whether they observed or violated the covenant. Effectively, everyone outside of the Israelite community, the Yahwist people, was irrelevant, was unimportant. And the justice or injustice of their wars were therefore founded on the quality of their relationship with Yahweh at any particular time. If they were in Yahweh's favor, then they could effectively partake in any sort of aggression and it would be righteous and just. And if they were in Yahweh's disfavor, then again, anything they did would be unjust and unrighteous. But it had nothing to do with their external competitors and everything to do with their own relationship with Yahweh. Hmm. Hmm. So give us the, the epilogue here, the very long epilogue, since we're, since we're from the ancient <laughs> Near East, a very long epilogue. So how do we, you know, just to kind of just you know, traverse it, you know, briefly here, but how do we get from this ancient kind of war tradition to modern uh, war traditions? Uh, you know, this, you know, you can go all the way from Plato to Cicero to Augustine, which you've mentioned. I think most people kind of have that kind of Augustine, you know, just war but as you've detailed, you know, the long, much ancient tradition to that. So how do we get from Hittites to Augustine, essentially? And, and second part to that is, how do we get from Augustine <laughs> to current day, where there is still conflict um, in Palestine, in Israel, uh, in, in Yemen, in, in, in many, many parts of, of, uh, of that part of the world? Uh, there's conflicts in Afghanistan, Iran, it's all, all over the place, unfortunately. How do we get from you know, Augustine uh, period to, to, to current day period. So, so give us the, uh, the brief uh, uh, epilogue of the past, uh, you know, 2,500 years. <laughs> mm. Yeah. I mean, so one of the reasons, reasons I, I, I call this book origins of the just war rather than origin of the just war, because I wanted to make it clear that what we're talking about is, is different traditions and different doctrines and, and different ideas that are potentially in conversation with each other and are potentially influencing each other, but they're not all coming from one source. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, I do think it's, it's, it's likely that this kind of dialogue and the interaction between these, these cultures produce, produce influences. Those influences are very difficult to pinpoint for certain uh, because the webs of you know, transfer and uh, are so complex. Um, but the same ideas, or at least the same concerns about things like authority, about things like cause, um, defense of territory, sometimes defense of allies, 
restitution of goods. There, there are so many similarities, and and the the cultures that we're dealing with, you know, address them and think about them in, in sometimes remarkably um, uh, similar ways. That it seems almost too much of a coincidence that these are completely um, uh, sort of being produced sort of sui generis, you know, or, or, or in a vacuum. Um, there's also, you know, plenty of evidence that, for example, that the Hebrew Bible influenced later Christianity. We know that for a fact. Um, you wouldn't get medieval Christian just war doctrine without the Old Testament. It's, it's simply that, that's incontrovertible. Um, and in terms of the Greco-Roman, you know, the, the, obviously the, 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 the Greek world expanded into the the, the the Levant and, and, and Egypt through the conquests of Alexander the Great. The Roman world did the same. And so there was the cultural interaction and, and infusion um, going on all, all the time. Now, some of these ideas, I think, are just products of, as I said, centralized states and the needs of communities to think about themselves, the, the desire of centralized rulers to, um, to uh, effectively uh, legitimate their own martial ventures and, and to get the power of the, 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 the state behind them. So I think you're always going to find similarities crop up regardless, and even if there's no connection. You know, if we could look at, we haven't got time to talk about you know, early Chinese just war thinking or early Hindu just war thinking, but mm-hmm. some of the similar ideas are evident there as well, and there's absolutely no evidence of, 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 of communication um, between these worlds. So, so we don't necessarily need contact for these ideas to emerge. But I think in the the Near Eastern case and the and the Mediterranean was such a sort of a, a melting pot of different ideas over these millennia that the chances for communication and influence are very high indeed. Now, as we get into the the, the Greco-Roman world, you know, we still see the same sort of chauvinism and partisanship. You know, the Hellenes invented the world word barbarian, barbaroi. Um, to, 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 to think about their enemies as, as somehow less than human and certainly not as worthy as Greeks to rule and things like this. The, the Romans thought in very similar ways. They divided between sort of peer competitors, hostes, or, and non-peer competitors they called inimici or, or letrones. So they were making these same sort of chauvinistic partisan divides, very much creating laws or... or concepts of war that benefited themselves. You know, the Christian period is an interesting development because it does, it, to a certain extent, introduce what we might think of as a sense of charity in war, this idea of intentionality, that you had to do it with a sense of love, that, that you did it for a love of justice, um, which was beginning to be there in, in earlier sources, but, but is, is articulated in, in different ways. I think what's most what's most worrying, though, to me about coming into the, the, the modern period, is that a lot of what I see is the the dangers of ancient just war thought are becoming apparent again. Not only in hmm. what we might think of as academic just war theory, but also in in the practice of war. That hmm. there is a temptation, particularly by moral analytical philosophers to see just war thought as a case of you have the unjust and you have the just. And that's because they see morality Mm. as sort of out there 
and available to be discovered. That if you, know, if you just think about mm. it hard enough, we'll get to the truth. I don't mm. see morality in that sense. I think mor- ideas of morality are historically contingent. They're culturally contingent. They're effectively, they're, they're, they're subjective and, and they change according to different cultural norms and, and cultural conditions. The problem is when you have an idea that morality and truth and justice is a, a thing to be discovered, then you start to encourage these black and white treatments again, that you can say, well, you're wrong and I'm right. And if you do that, then you start to think about liability in war and culpability in war very differently. So some of these what are referred to as revisionist just war thinkers who are incredibly sophisticated and, and very persuasive on, on paper, I think they don't give enough attention to perhaps the real world um, repercussions of some of the things that they say. So, for example, they say that, you know, in an unjust side, civilians are liable to be harmed. You can execute prisoners of war um, if there's a danger to the just side and keeping them alive. Now, you know, on, these are interesting philosophical arguments, but the problem is this is war we're talking about, and these things happen. Right. And if you start right. giving a theoretical justification to this sort of action, I think you're in really dangerous territory, that war has a habit of making things extreme and making things simplified, and it dehumanizes people and it radicalizes people. Yeah. And so I think Absolutely. to encourage that sort of radicalization and those simple black, white, good, bad divisions is a, is a very dangerous thing. And the, and the, the other element I see is sort of, the, of these ancient um, sort of absolutist tendencies returning to modern war is this sense of, of superiority. And I think liberal states mm. perhaps are, 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 are as guilty about this as, as anybody else, this idea of you know, it's the liberal mm-hmm. democratic political system which is correct the sort of the Western yep. model of international law is always right. And, mm-hmm. you know, and then you see a raft of interventionism and effectively more war globally. So I don't think that's really yep. doing what it is it's meant to be there for. And then if you look at something like Salafi jihadism, these are very radical jihadist interpretations of, of Islamic classical um, jihadist thought, which is actually incredibly sophisticated and nuanced and was in some mm-hmm. ways far in advance of the medieval Christian tradition. Um, and did allow for things like the protection of non-combatants and, um, uh, and uh, the protection of certain property and things like this. You know, you have this Salafi tradition, which makes very um, clear distinctions between evil and good. And if you're evil, mm-hmm. then it doesn't matter if you're a soldier or a civilian, you know, everyone can be killed. And, you know, mm-hmm. you know the, 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 the more you believe in your own moral superiority, and your own justification, the more chances we see of the enemy being sort of, uh, yeah, dehumanized, criminalized, and treated in horrific ways. This is all a diminution of, of what is called the war convention, which is kind of held, held fast for about 200 odd years or more even, um, which basically says that there is legal equality or legal symmetry in combatants. So, Effectively, you know, from about Grotius onwards, we have this idea that no one really knows who has justice in any side because sovereign states both claim to have justice. So all we can do is control war in its conduct. So we treat both combatants from either side as morally and legally equal. But that war convention perhaps is starting to be assaulted 
when you have ideas that say, well, no, we're right and they're wrong, therefore they shouldn't have the same rights as us. We saw it post 9-11 with, say, the, the, uh, the use of torture and incarceration of you know, non-state actors and people who weren't given the status of, of being um, combatants. And um, I think it's a worrying trend with, with modern warfare that we're seeing more and more often. And it's really a return in lots of ways to this chauvinistic, morally absolutist tendency of, of, of seeing war and seeing one's enemies. And it only ends in brutality. I fully agree with everything you just said. And I think it's super important. I mean, you're obviously well more positioned or well positioned to, uh, to, to, to talk about this. Cause you, you know, you, you, you've written a fabulous book on this and, and, and showcasing the history of this. And, but I, I fully agree. I fully agree with all of that. And I think that we're, we're in many ways, humans are kind of the same in other ways we're not, but, uh, Yes, loading up religion and especially the most extreme forms of it, loading up you know various uh, you know nationalism and all the worst aspects of nationalism, you know, and and even a moral superiority. I think these really is a kind of horrible cocktail for um, really just hurting other humans in the worst ways possible and feeling justified about it, and it has a big big, big, big danger. This isn't, you know, literally we've been doing these things for millennia and we should, uh, we have to learn from, from our past, not repeat the same mistakes. So my final question here is, is how do the origins of a, of a just war show us that war was not nihilistic or simplistic as you've told us, uh, in the conversation in the book, but rather that it was pulled from cultural, religious, ethical, legal norms that were being created and and uh, what can what can we learn from from uh, from the military ethics and culture in the ancient Near East? Yeah, so I guess the everything that I've said sound for, so, so far sounds you know uh, negative and, and, and depressing and and it is <laughs> in, in some ways. Um, but you know, if we're to take a silver lining, and the reason why I don't think we can just dismiss just war thought, whether ancient or modern, as just you know, a, 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 a veil for realism, you know, a veil for power politics, is that ideas still have force. You know, that, that mm. we, you know, complex human communities tell ourselves certain stories about ourselves. And those stories are important to our identities. And we have proven ourselves as a species and as political communities more than capable of imposing limits and penances and restrictions on ourselves in order to be able to think of ourselves as good people and good communities and morally um, advanced or progressive or civilized. There is, there's plenty of evidence for us you know, doing that and not just acting purely for profit or, or purely for the desire to, to dominate our enemies. And so ideas remain important and words have power, that when politicians and military commanders claim to be doing something in a certain way for a certain cause, they are to a certain extent held to those words. Now that's not to say that there's not all manner of abuse, um, 
But effectively, if you want to pull on the language of just war, and if you want to claim to be a just warrior, a just nation, fighting for something more than just power and influence and profit and vengeance and hatred, if, if you make these claims in the international arena, people still listen and they will criticize you and attack you when you patently fail to live up to those claims. Now, that is no guarantee, of course, that war is going to be nice or pleasant and that atrocities aren't going to happen. But that is also the nature of the beast. The, you know, the idea that you can have a nice or a sterile war is, is a fallacy. You, you can't. War is, is a brutal and an awful and horrible thing. But if we can limit it at all, if we can restrain it at all, then that is a measure of success. And, and I think the, the one thing that the just war tradition does is that although on the one hand you could say that it encourages conflicts by providing this sort of thin veneer of acceptability and morality, on the other hand, I don't think you can deny that it does also limit it and, and hold people up to a certain standard, a standard that is often disappointed. But the alternative is that you have no standard at all. There will still be wars. And where do you go from there? So, you know, it's, it's, it's a small hope, I suppose, and perhaps its uses are limited. But effectively, it's, it's better than nothing. And, and that's how I think of it. Mm. You know, it's the sort of the, the least worst option, is it? <laughs> you know, uh, mm-hmm. if you want to put it that, that way. That there are some ways that it still contains and constricts actions and makes people accountable um, to a certain measure, to their own publics, perhaps, or even possibly to their own conscience. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I fully, I fully, fully agree with you. Well, the book is called Origins of the Just War, Military Ethics and Culture in the Ancient Near East. It sounds through uh, the wonderful Princeton University Press. Uh, what can I say, Rory? You gave me three hours on just war from, from a millennia ago, and I'm, I'm so, uh, so enriched, and I feel very full of, of, of uh, contentment. And so I'm so, so happy that you, you came on and you you downloaded uh, uh, all of your wisdom for for me and the listeners and um you know and gave me more time than i than i than i thought and so i always love the long form conversations i i i could probably do another three hours but just not right now so uh but maybe we'll have to have you on again uh in another uh 10 years when you finish the next one so um i i greatly appreciate you coming on and really really uh, talking about all of this and all your hard work in this great book. So I am, I am uh, very, very grateful and, and thankful. Thank you so much. And it was a fantastic conversation and really fascinating to speak to you. Thank you again for having me.